Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through all the politicians' spin. We've got a ripper of a show ahead of you for this week. And my first guest this afternoon is my good mate, Banksy. No, not the artist. I mean, John Banks. I've known him since I was in shorts, so I thought I'd get him in to discuss the new government arrangements. And then I'll be talking with Casey Costello again, this time about her by-election campaign and a few other topics I know she'll enjoy. We'll dip into the mailbag, of course. I love this part of the show. And then it'll be time for a chat with my buddies, to find out their thoughts about the pathetic behaviour and actions of the legacy media. Don't forget to send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. As National Enact and New Zealand First enter into negotiations to form a government, you have to admire the message discipline from all parties. They've steadfastly declined to have negotiations conducted via the media. It's admirable, necessary, and wonderful all at the same time. It shows that unlike the media who are trying every pathetic trick in the book and puerile stunts to try and get a read on things, the politicians are taking these negotiations seriously. It's necessary because our mainstream or legacy media are no longer reporters of the news. 
They're literally the media party pushing propaganda and their own agendas. And it's wonderful because it shows just how facile and puerile the New Zealand media really are. Over the past few days, we've seen the unedifying spectacle of mainstream journalists as they seek to create stories out of nowhere. They're so put out that neither Christopher Luxon nor David Seymour, nor especially Winston Peters, will speak to them. They're very put out that their inane and facile questions aren't being answered. It all started with Glenn McConnell from Stuff getting all outraged because Winston Peters read him his highly questionable pedigree. McConnell breathlessly wrote that Winston Peters had evaded questions after the final results of the election were released, and he claimed that Peters is the only one of the three coalition leaders to have avoided political reporters since the Electoral Commission confirmed the results on Friday. Well, so what? There's no obligation for Winston Peters to speak to anyone, and certainly not activist journalists who have taken scant interest in either Mr. Peters or New Zealand First. And that's the thing. The legacy media studiously and deliberately ignored New Zealand First, their candidates, and their policies. And now they're acting all surprised that no one wants to talk to them, or worse, that these politicians are happy to talk to me or Sean Plunkett or Radio Waitia. But none are more angry about that than David Fisher, one of the most disingenuous journalists I've ever had the displeasure in meeting and interacting with. He emailed me, my mates, and started calling people on some wonky jihad because he's upset that Winston Peters gave me his only post-election interview on election night. Ironically, while David Fisher was consuming the free kai and booze at the New Zealand First Party. And here's one of his 10 questions to me. Congratulations on your election night interview with Mr. Peters, which is all the more extraordinary given it took place before Mr. Peters thanked his supporters, which has always been a priority for him on election night. It would appear to be the only interview Mr. Peters carried out for weeks after the election. What is it about your approach to political interviews that made for a compelling election night pitch to Mr. Peters? And can you believe it? Talk about professional jealousy. Talk about bent out of shape. He's pissed off that I, not him, the trained and skilled New Zealand Herald journalist, got an interview with Winston Peters on election night. David Fisher thinks he's special. He thinks he's the best. He's wrong on both counts. Winston Peters would have been well aware of David Fisher's nasty article two days before the election, criticising both Winston Peters and New Zealand First for their traditional aftermatch function at the Duke of Marlborough in Russell that they have each and every election. But seriously, asking me how to approach politician and securing interviews? How old is this guy, 12? But you know why it is that politicians give us here at Reality Check Radio interviews? Because we give them a fair hearing. Because we let them speak. Because we don't interrupt them. And because we haven't got an axe to grind. Have a listen to all of my interviews. They're illuminating. They're insightful. And they're informative. They're all the things David Fisher is not. But let's get back to the banal questions legacy media are putting to the politicians. Glenn McConnell helpfully gave us a list. Get this. 
how negotiations were progressing. Well, none of your business, Glenn. Why has he not responded to the ACT Party as its leader, David Seymour, said attempts to reach out had been ignored? Who cares? Maybe Winston Peters doesn't do text messages. Maybe David Seymour is so out of touch with the generational divide, he used a message forum that Winston Peters doesn't use. Or how about if Seymour would make a good finance minister or could be one? Or is that even an option? I mean, this is ridiculous. And when he would start speaking to political reporters again, well, he hasn't stopped speaking, you dolt. He just talks to reporters and radio show hosts he trusts, not axe-grinding fifth columnists. He talks to reporters and journalists who actually do their work. Peter's hit out at stuff, though, and it tells you everything you need to know. He said to McConnell, listen, sunshine, you didn't want to know what I was saying before the election. Now you want to talk to me after. You have to laugh, don't you? They don't get it, and long may that continue. Stuff then tried a different approach, sending Amberly Jack out to the campaign launch for the Port Waikato by-election. Instead of reporting what happened, we got a thinly-veiled hatchet job showing just how childish and bent stuff reporters are. And get this, this is an example of what she wrote. As the time neared for the Kingmaker's arrival, the room filled quickly. More turned up than anticipated. More plastic chairs were brought in. One young teen stood out amongst the crowd. His hair was one of the few that retained its natural melanin. I mean, what the actual ageist, abusive, churlish, yes, news, not even close. Yet this is what Stuff wants us to believe is quality journalism. It's rubbish, not even news. Axe grinding as your prop. Little wonder then that the politicians won't speak to them. They are only showing the journalists the level of respect the journalists show the politicians. They're only picking up what the journalists are laying down. So why are they surprised? But then we get this little piece of puerile nonsense from One News, and I quote, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters has arrived in Wellington ahead of a meeting with his caucus, kicked off a two-minute walk through the airport where he ignored reporters' questions. It echoes a similar scene during the campaign where Peters ignored 27 questions as he walked from the arrivals lounge to a taxi. Well, whoopee. And the questions? Well, again, they helpfully provide them. Again, I'm quoting. Greeting Peters as he arrived at Wellington Airport, reporters asked a range of questions, including, how are you feeling? How are you doing today? Have you spoken to Mr. Seymour? Are you worried the ACT Party is going to hold up negotiations? Is that a bottom line for you, the pension age? How long will negotiations take? Anything nice to say about David Seymour? Have you spoken to David Seymour yet? And one reporter even offered to carry Peter's carry-on suitcase down a flight of stairs for him. I'm just being nice, genuinely, the reporter said. Yeah, whatever. Imagine if Winston Peters had accepted that offer to carry his suitcase. You can just see it now, can't you? One news would have led the evening's news bulletin with Winston Peters unable to carry his own suitcase has to be helped by the media. Is he able to still be in coalition? Yeah, media, nice try. 
These journalists are facile, churlish dolts, undeserving of any answers, and it's high time that politicians treated them with the contempt they deserve. And if I were Winston Peters, the very next words out of my mouth would be, it's time to defund the media. And then I'd set about ensuring that the new government put a moratorium on all government advertising for at least six months, forcing these lazy scumbags to start having to work for their living. Take away their state funding in all its forms and then see how they cope with that. They are the enemy of the people, attention-seeking haters and wreckers who are a large part of the problem we face in New Zealand, and it's time to take a wrecking ball to them. The media are incensed they're being ignored, so much so they have a wilting cauliflower on NewsHub. Yes, the same NewsHub, the media with their cap out, begging the politicians for more state funding to keep them afloat. The same news hub that's owned by the multi-billion global conglomerate Discovery, and they want their hands filled with our taxpayers' dollars. But right now, though, Winston Peters is doing exactly what I voted for him to do, and he's giving the media the long handle, which is what they deserve. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Store's direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. John Banks is a great mate. He stood by me thick and thin, and I've stood by him. He's a true friend who I've known since I was a boy in shorts. He's also one of the most compassionate politicians I've ever met. He joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch. Hello, Whale. Can you hear me? I can, uh, Banksy. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk to you. I thought I'd give you a call and uh, let's have a chat about this exciting election and uh, your thoughts and processes having been a a former member of the ACT Party and, of course, in a caucus uh, sitting with Winston Peters and we'll just talk about the results, where it's going to head and what you think is going to happen. Well, um, it's been a glad three weeks. It's been a celebration of common sense, common ground, and a good outcome for the people of New Zealand. This was a very, very bad Labor government. In fact, an evil Labor government, uh, Marxist to the core. Uh, Mm. The elites were being developed. They were being built. They were being rewarded. The pippy pipes were full of bludges sucking off the public tit, and the rest of us just had to uh, suck it and see. And we did. We had an election. Fortunately, we still have elections in this country. Well, we had an election, uh, and the Labour Party got rogered, and uh, appropriately so, uh, painfully so, because they deserve everything they get. They were a rotten outfit. They've taken this country to the brink of destitution, uh, and now there's going to be a long, long way back. Well, it'll be a long reckoning too, because I don't think we've finished uh, dealing to the Labour Party for 
all of the excesses that they have done over the last six years. You know, I was talking to Michael Bassett before the election, and you know, a finer gentleman you you'll never meet. And I questioned him, you know, being a political historian on whether or not, you know, how did he rate this government? And he said it's the worst in his lifetime, and he's 85 years old. Yes, I know Michael Bassett well. He's a great mate of mine. He's an outstanding New Zealander. He, he is a true patriot, and he's one of our greatest, if not our greatest living historian. And uh, he would have a good handle uh, on this. Uh, I, I'm pretty angry. Uh, really well uh, at where the country is. Uh, just let, give, let me give you one matrix, and that is mm. we've gone from a $60 billion debt to $160 billion debt in four years. Now, the future uh, of this country and the future discussions we should be having publicly and in cabinet and in government is about the economy, all about people's standards of living, uh, hope to be able to pay the bills, the mortgage, have a future, educate their kids, pay our way in the world. Unfortunately, uh, we're tracking right now uh, to third world, uh, without a doubt, uh, on all the metrics, and uh, it is very bad. Uh, These people, some of these people should be in jail, should be in jail. What they've done to the country is criminal. Well, the economic vandals. I mean, Grant Robertson uh, has presided over an economic decline that makes, you know, the things that uh, your good friend Rob Muldoon did pale into insignificance. But at least with Rob Muldoon's debt that we had, we actually built things with it. You know, we've we've got the Clyde Dam, we've got Motunui, we had Marston Point. These economic vandals have have pretty much closed all of that down apart from, you know, the dams. Well, it's interesting because I was in a Rob Muldoon government when we were talking about all of those big projects. Uh, I was there when we had pickets and uh, rioting uh, on the picket line at Marsden Point when we built that extension. And I'm still alive today, uh, bless the Lord, uh, to see it closed down. Uh, When I say that, uh, I'm very annoyed that we have closed it down, but it seems like time flies. But uh, I was thinking, Whale, of the seven prime ministers I've worked with and for, this is going to shock you. Helen Clark, by far, was the most competent. I, I agree with you. you know, I didn't like her politics, but she was exceptionally no. competent. And she had the Maori in their right place. Uh, she would have never allowed the incremental marification and racial division that has been built so well and fortified in this country these last six years. Helen Clark would never have allowed that. And Michael Cullen, uh, now not with us, of course, sadly, but Michael Cullen was very competent around the books. He knew the books. And they kept the books in pretty good shape, Whale, compared yeah. to 60 billion four years ago to 160 billion in debt. Most of it, whale, most of the debt to Beijing. Now, it's, if they had another term, if the people of New Zealand were stupid enough and they're not to give them another term, uh, we would have been owned by Beijing. That's the thing that's always worried me, and it concerned me too with the National Party uh, under John Key. There seemed to be this groveling towards Beijing 
And, uh, you know, we were told that these free trade deals were going to be do wonders for New Zealand, that we were going to have all these amazing things happen by signing up to these deals with Beijing. But but at the same time, we were kind of like handing over our, our foreign policy to, to Chinese interests. Uh, we were beggaring ourselves to the Chinese. And it was very short-sighted, uh, I felt, crawling to, up to the Chinese. I mean, you know, you, you were in the National Party for a long time, just like I was. I, I can well remember uh, senior National Party MPs, ministers in, included, and senior office holders like my dad, who was, uh, you know, the Auckland Regional Chair and then the, the President, uh, attending the Taiwanese National Day and celebrations uh, with the Kuomintang. They were, of course, in, in the IDU, International Democratic Union, together. Under John Key, that was all abandoned as we crawled uh, basically up Beijing's backside. And I, I just could never countenance abandoning a democratic country like Taiwan uh, to suck up to a communist dictatorship. Well, well, it's worse than that, Wow, We've abandoned our sovereignty. Mm. You cannot have sovereignty when you have our level of debt. You know that. Yeah. We're not an, we're, we're not an independently-minded country. Uh, we are a emerging third-world country. Uh, we're a racist country. Uh, uh, we're uh, a, a deeply indebted company, country. Uh, we're an inward-looking country. Uh, we're a piss-poor political country. Uh, and we're a country in great strife. Now, this brings me to the election. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give the, all the support in the world to Lux, uh, yep. to Seymour, and to Winston Peters, all the support in the world uh, you know, as an old white man of no consequence, uh, I'm delighted to have this opportunity to tell you and your listeners that I'm going to give them all the goodwill and all the support in the world to stop this big ship Aotearoa from crashing on the rocks because it's bloody close. Yeah. It's very close, Whale, and then turn it around slowly. And, of course, it's 9 to 12 years, Whale. It's yeah. 9 to 12 years. And that is why Winston Peters is very important in this. Not because Winston Peters is Winston Peters, but because Winston Peters is going to add a lot of ballast to the big, light blue ship national. Yeah. This is a National Party caucus that is uh, at least woke with a small W and worse... Fabian to the core. And so we've got to watch this very carefully. This is not an old-fashioned Tory, Keith Holyoke, National Party government that I was part of all of those years ago when I first stood for Parliament all of those years ago. This is a different animal because of the reckless experiment of MMP and the damage that that reckless experiment has wreaked on our country, Whale. Therein lies another challenge. So, Whale, there's challenges today on all fronts, and more power to Lux, uh, to Seymour, and to Winston to sort it out. But, but look, it's not, it's not just the change of government I'm excited about. I'm not terribly excited 
about the change of government. What I am excited about as a patriot is the change of direction that needs to take place and must take place on a broad front. And let me put this on the record today for you, Whale. This war for the National Party, the ACT Party and New Zealand First in the parliament, in our parliament, won't be a war between them and the parliamentary opposition. It's going to be a war between the coalition government and the civil service. And the the civil service. Because the civil service is absolutely riddled with bad people, bad philosophy, bad concepts, bad principles, and bad habits. Well, I mean, and then they're also assisted by a bad media that unquestionably are, you know, 95% left-wing or hard-left. Uh, there's only well, a very small smattering of conservatives, and even then there would be a small C conservative, and that's, again, the National Party aren't even conservative anymore. They, they're left-wing, uh, just slightly left-wing, but they're, they're left-wing nonetheless, and that's the problem that we've well, got I in must, society. I, I must pick up a couple of things going through this wonderful opportunity to talk to you, Wale, and thank you for it, and that is um, Brooke Van Velden, the face of the future of this country. Her politics are pure, uh, a good, hard-working woman. Uh, she represents everything I stand for and stand against, and uh, all power to Brooke Van Velden, and good on her for what she's achieved. But look, it's going to take more than Brooke. It's going to take more than Winston. It's going to take more than Lux. It's going to take more than all of them. What it's going to take is a country that's prepared to brace itself Yep. For the full stop that needs to happen and the about turn that has to happen. That's what I'm worried about is that particularly the National Party won't have the courage to do that and it's then therefore incumbent upon the ACT Party and New Zealand First to put that full stop at the end of the six years that we've just had and try and reverse this creeping socialism and racism that has seeped into New Zealand society, uh, along with, of course, the, the increasing crime, which is which shows that the societal impacts of six years of labour are, are causing. You know, the, the damage that's happened in society has led to the rise in crime. Now, you used to be a police minister. There was never this yeah. sort of nonsense when you were a police minister. Well, uh, for all of my faults, I was weak, I wasn't gutless, mm. I wasn't indecisive, and I had the support of the Commissioner of Police uh, and the rank and file to sort out the shit that needed to be sought out at the appropriate time. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, gangsters running the country, uh, running the roads, the highways, running the drugs, uh, running the underground economy, and running the police racket, and it's got to stop. These are the kind of things where we need a stop, a think, and an about turn and march backwards to what we know works. And being kind and generous uh, to gangsters has never worked. And appeasement has never worked. It's worked to the extent that they all voted for the Labour Party, but that's all it's worked to the extent of. Uh, The rest hasn't. Now, we've got to round up these low life. And uh, we've got to put them in jail. And uh, the other thing is, 
we've got to turn around the judiciary. The judiciary is now loaded, loaded with left-wing, woke, racist jurists. Wombles. Well, you know, they're all probably good human persons, and I'm not going to challenge them on that as a human person, but their philosophy, concepts, and principles are not in the best interests of this country. They're in the best interests of elitism, whale. Elitism, and, and, and elitism defaults to Marxism, whale. Well, that's right. And, and you know, you talk about um, the judges, and, you know, we've had legislation in place that has tried to send a message that we want people incarcerated, we want them in jail, uh, we want them off the streets so that they're not committing crime in our streets. And the judges uh, go soft. They get a direction from the government or, or they take it upon yeah. themselves to undermine, you know, like three strikes, for example, which was a fine piece <laughs> of legislation, uh, which the judges set about uh, using uh, a, a very tiny wedge that was inserted into the legislation to undermine it. And it seems to me that well, what we need to do is instead of setting uh, maximum sentences for crimes, we should be setting minimum sentences for crimes that cannot be reduced by an activist judiciary. Well, let's let's be innovative about law and order and crime. It's out of control in this country, as you know. Mm. It's out of control. And we're only going to deal with it uh, with uh, an intergenerational change. Now, when I go up to Mount Eden Jail and sit in a, a, a meeting with all the uh, prisoners up there, uh, yeah. nine out of ten are and Pacific Island, uh, most of them can't read or write. Most of them have glutia. The vast majority of them have been raped as kids and sexually molested. Yeah. They've been treated as dogs that you tie to a tree and kick it as you walk past and then wonder why it bites you. So let's start with making jails work in the best interest of an intergenerational change that will stop uh, this treadmill. And that is education. If yeah. you're going into jail, you're going to have to get learn to at least read and write. You won't be released until you have a chaperone and somewhere to live and a job to go to, and strict supervision, and you won't be able to rejoin the game. And let's start bringing back some sensible things that are going to change, not in the short term, well, this is not going to change in the short term, but in the next 25 years, we could see some change. It's a disgrace. It is a disgrace, the number of the Maori, the First Nations people, and Pacific Islanders in New Zealand jails. It is so wrong. It is a disgrace. And we can only fix it through education and responsibility within the family. Don't continue to pay them all of the welfare that they need and want and ask for, plus all the food bank support that they need and want and ask for and get, and then expect them not to change their behaviour. You know, when people listen to you talk like that, um, Banksy, they just look at John Banks, the person they know now. Now, you've you've had an upbringing that by all accounts, was dreadful. Uh, you've got every excuse in the world to have actually been a criminal, right, with your parents, the way you were brought up, all of those sorts of things, and yet you're not. So you are living proof that in New Zealand we have a richness of opportunity if only you'd grasp it yourself. 
Yes, I think I, I think I was blessed to the extent that although I went to sixteen different schools, you know, I, I, I had people that picked me up on the way that knew my mm. circumstances. Uh, that embraced me as a human person and gave me a bit of an education and taught me the difference from right and wrong and sent me to Sunday school. And gave you a swift kick in the pants when you needed it. Well, yeah, when, when I needed it. But um, uh, most of the kids that I lived with went to jail and spent a long, long time in jail, and, and that's very sad. And, um, you know, um, but for the grace of God. So... I know what it's like to live in poverty. Uh, I know what it's like to be abused uh, and assaulted. Uh, I, I, I know what it's like to piss the bed every night and get thrashed every morning. Um, I, I know what it's like. And it's not good. And it's yeah. not good. And these things contribute to many of the uh, crimes that we have in this country and the people that we have in jail. And if we think we're going to just continue doing what we've done for the last 25 years and expect change, it's not going to happen. Which brings me to another thing, well, if I can mention mm. to you. You go Carter right ahead. School. Carter that, School. That was one of the finest we, things you did as part of your coalition uh, negotiations. Well, let me just put it in simple terms. We had a charter school in Wangarei. And if you went to Wangarei Boys High School today and asked the principal, how many of the Maori boys are going to get school certificate this year? he'd say about 40%. If you went to my charter school in Wangarei and said, how many of the Maori boys are going to get school certificate this year? They'd say, well, last year we got 96% and we hope to get 100% this year. Why the hell did this bad, bad Labor government, erstwhile Labor government, abolish charter schools when they were working for the most vulnerable and the people that they were tailored for, mainly the Maori people? Well, we know the answer to that. It's pandering to the teacher unions. Well, uh, I want to talk about pandering for a moment, Wale. Sure. uh, uh, I don't like pandering. We've pandered to the media with our money for too long. The Marxists have bought the loyalty of the New Zealand media. The New Zealand media is riddled, riddled with journalistic corruption. Well, yeah, exactly. I and mean, look at the performance over just the last three or four days where we've had stuffed journalists writing articles that they were upset because Winston Peters wouldn't talk to them. Uh, you've had another stuffed journalist who wrote an article about the campaign launch for New Zealand First at Port Waikato, and the main thrust of the article was there was a lot of people with grey hair there and only one teenager, and, um, you know, it, it was just an attack piece. Uh, and then, of course, we had one news yesterday with their performance at the airport uh, offering to hold Winston Peters' briefcase for him uh, or his bag. You can just imagine what would have happened if it, Winston had been stupid enough to hand over uh, his bag and say, sure, you can carry it. You could just imagine it. On one news, you would have had that Simon Dallow on the TV going, uh, Winston Peters is so feeble he can't even carry his own bag. That's That's the dishonesty that exists within our New Zealand well, media well, today. But, but, you see, it's worse than that. I don't care what shit something called stuff writes. I, I don't know much about someone called stuff that writes shit. I, I'm not interested, but I'll tell you what I am interested in. Well, yeah. I'm interested in the millions, the millions of taxpayer money that the stuff get to run this shit. 
Well, maybe we need to have uh, a politician who start. You know, you, we had all this, you know, with Black Lives Matter in in the United States and calls to defund the police. But what we really actually need to do is defund the media, take away the, that government funding oh, from well, them. Well, well, and all of the millions of dollars that they get put into them from the health ministry or from the, you know, I mean, the, the, the police even run these nonsensical ads on the radio uh, telling people to look again, look again. It, that's how insidious it is to protect motorcycle riders. Now, you're a motorcycle rider. You ride a Ducati, of all things, right? Yes. It's a, a very powerful motorbike. Who is responsible for making sure you're safe on the motorbike. Is it you or is it everyone around you? Yes, it's you, right? right? <laughs> but, but, you know, well, coming back to the major point here, the major point is that Goebbels mm. was funded by the state uh, uh, handsomely, uh, and so were his uh, uh, propagandist handmaidens. Why in this democracy are we funding the news media, for God's sake, why don't they leave it to those really bad, bad radio companies like uh, MediaWorks to spend their money, blow their money, and run their shareholder cash into the ground? Why don't they leave it to that? Why am I, why is my hard-earned taxes that I paid a week or so ago at the end of October, why the hell is my taxes being used to fund, for instance, that dreadful shit paper called the New Zealand Herald. Mm. It used to be the paper of record, and it's just now, I mean, you, you could have used it a few years back to, you know, line uh, the kitty litter tray, but it's so thin now that you couldn't even use it to line a budgie cage. Well, I, of course, uh, you wouldn't respect me if I read it. I don't read it, but um, no, I do. Neither do I. I, 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 my people tell me uh, that they're funded to the tune of about $8 million a year. Am I, have I got this wrong? Well, I think you're right. I mean, there's all of this government money that's pouring into these media organisations, and, of course, there's the $55 million plus and another $100 million as well that, that nobody talks about that was poured into the media uh, over the last six years by this government. Uh, that just all needs to stop. We need to actually have a moratorium on any sort of government advertising in the media. Now, if some of those media companies fall over, so be it. That's what happens in a market when you don't have enough revenue from multiple sources. And let them fall over because nature also abhors a vacuum. And and then what will happen is people will go out and start their own new media organisations, uh, you know, the way they used to do when the media followed the rolling out of the railway or the telegraph uh, in the United States. You had individuals who go out and set up a pamphlet and then they get people to pay for that. And then it grew into, a, into uh, you know, a newspaper, a local newspaper. That was then gobbled up by these global uh, conglomerates. I actually think we need to get away from these global conglomerates because it's not reflecting the, the man on the street and go back to these little individual news outlets that people can support uh, by subscribing because they like what they read. Well, that's right. That's right. I don't care how many newspapers are out there, if they call them newspapers or stuffs or any yeah. other agency. Websites or whatever, uh, yeah. But I'm not interested in funding them a while. And this is the change in direction that I'm talking about. Uh, what I want to say this morning, Whale, is that we live in a 
for, for New Zealand in a very critical time in our history. Uh, why is it a critical time? Because we're broke yeah. in an uncertain world. Yeah, and defenseless. We're defenseless, we're broke, and we're witless, and we're leaderless in a very uncertain world. And we also live in, in a little speck of the of the world far away from anyone else. I mean, the closest neighbor to us is three hours away in a plane. So we are yep. literally at the ends of the earth, and we are vulnerable, and we are weak, and we are ripe for the plucking. Right. So this is what Lux, Seymour, and Winston have got to do. Yep. They've got to get out a mini budget before Christmas. And it's got to be radical. It's got to be radical. There's got to be a change of direction. The civil service have got to start doing as they're told. The civil service needs to be triangulated. The civil service needs to be restructured. The civil service needs new leadership right through their ranks. Let me take one. Let me just take one civil service for you. Um, I'm told, for instance that much more time is spent at civil aviation, that CAA. Yep. The design of Maori lanyards to wear uh, persification cards for staff mm. and the SCON committee, the SCON committee at yep. civil aviation, than in safety out in the provinces of our commuter airlines. Now, that's what I'm told. So we've got to get priorities right, Whale. We've got to have quite a radical change of direction. But there's something quite smart that happened that I loved about this country. I went to a couple of meetings, ACT Party meetings. I went out to May Road Hall, where in 1978 I debated Arthur Faulkner and got a thrashing that I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. Arthur Faulkner was one of the great... Labour parliamentarians, an ex-war soldier and a very good man. I was 26 years of age. I knew everything. I challenged him publicly for a public debate. He took up the challenge. We met at the May Road Hall. 450 people turned up and he thrashed me for two and a half hours. And I'll never forget it. And anyway, so I went back to the May Road Hall and it was an ACT Party campaign meeting two weeks before the election. It was full of ethnic Indian people. Now, they're hardworking, good people, ethnic Indian people. Yep. 25% of Roskilla's ethnic Indian. And they were talking, all they were interested in doing is what is the next government going to do to save our women and children from being bashed and stabbed in our dairies, our superettes, and our liquor stores? They yep. were all the questions. And so I wasn't surprised when the hapless National Party candidate won the seat of Roskill because the people spoke. And I love to tell the story to you and your listeners, Whale, because the people spoke in electorates up and down the country, often from different policy perspectives, but from a position of what is this government going to do to make my life better, or at least safer in my dairy at 10 o'clock at night with my wife and kids asleep on the floor out the back. What is this government going to do to save our business from these marauding criminals that are coming in and beating us up and indeed stabbing us to death? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if you are a National Party candidate standing in Roskill or Mount Roskill or whatever iteration it has been since forever, you were really cannon fodder, and it was only in spectacular occurrences where the Labour Party had become tone deaf, had ignored the wishes of the people that you saw idiots like Gilbert Miles elected. Um, I don't know enough about Carlos Chung, but he, he clearly uh, was more popular than Michael Wood, whose sole claim to fame before entering politics was that he worked for Hugh Wright's measuring the inside seam of, uh, of men's suits. Uh, it doesn't really qualify him to be a cabinet minister, but yes, there he was. So you're absolutely right. When the uh, electorate is ignored, the general population is ignored, that they feel that the government is not listening to them, then you get these upsets. But your wish for a a mini budget, I think we need to be careful too around that because you're a person of faith, as I'm a person of faith. You know, there's a sometimes an unholy uh, desire in New Zealand society to bash beneficiaries. Now, Matthew twenty four forty says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And there, you know, Jesus Christ is telling us to look after the less fortunate. But we have got a problem in society where welfareism has got moved from a safety net to a trampoline. And there's a lot of people out there that are, and, and you alluded to it earlier on, you know, when we were talking, where you said their every want and need met, and and then they get more on top of that. And the hard-working Kiwi, the guy who's running the dairy or uh, the guy who delivers the bread and the milk to the dairy, they're getting a rough ride. And they're getting the predations of the criminal classes against them at the same time. And they're paying for the privilege of a whole lot of people who could work, who should be working, and aren't working. But yes. we, we need I to think, have that I compassion, think. don't we? And and that's the thing I've learned from you, Banksy, over the years. You know, that the personal part of politicians that many people don't see. You know, and I'll always remember that day when you visited my mother in the hospice and did an amazing compassionate thing. Now people don't see that from John Banks. They only see the rhetorics. And I'd love people to see that more of that John Banks that I know. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, God bless your mother. Wow, she was she was a great great woman. Um, but it's true, you know. Um, I, I look. I I don't sing it from the hilltops, but I support a lot of people. I'm an AA, uh, an alcohol counsellor. Have been for forty years. Yes. I spent a lot of time working with sick people. Um, but, um, you know, you've got to do your bit. Um, I, I might just tell you in passing, uh, Whale, that mm. the greatest thing you can do for someone is give someone something that they'll never be able to repay you for. Yes. And um, I'm a believer in that. I'm a believer in kindness and compassion. But I'll tell you what, I don't like bloody radio stations that are peddling BS yeah. with my money. That is worse than someone ripping off the welfare system. Twins is, is a radio station that masquerades as an honest uh, third-party observer of all things good and bad in the country and then writes propaganda uh, and, uh, and from, the, from the mouths 
of the government that have been funding them for so long from the pippy pipe that they so love. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I mean, and that's exactly, why Reality Check exactly. Radio was formed, because we needed to have the reasonable voice, that ability to have courageous discussions, to confront the issues that need to be confronted, to discuss in a rational way without getting uh, overly aggressive and emotional. I mean, I, I listen to other radio stations and, and interviews that are held with politicians, and it seems there's this combative nature where it's us or them and we're going to get you. And it, it doesn't, it's unedifying. It doesn't educate people. I mean, you've spent a lot of time on radio. You know, you took over from, from Rob Muldoon and you ran a show there. You, you've been on multiple radio stations. Always your interviews were, uh, you know, a lot like mine, where you let, had a conversation with people and let them talk. And it seems that in New Zealand society, we've lost the ability to talk. We can disagree. You know, like, I don't agree with Helen Clark, but I'm sure I could have a good discussion with her. I don't see eye to eye with Chris Trotter, but a finer man you've never met. And we've got this ability to have a discussion. But society in general has, has forgotten that ability to have a discussion, and I think oh, we need well, to practice well, it more often. True, true, Whale. Whale, we've become a lost people. Mm. We've become a lost people, Whale. Uh, the people are lost. This country is lost. It's rudderless. It's directionless. It's going nowhere except more into debt to Beijing. Uh, and uh, we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Look, I'm just an old white man whose days now are counted. But I do still care about this country, Whale. Yeah. And I still have a measure of hope for this country because I want it good for my kids and my grandkids yet born. And so we've got to give it our best shot. We can't just abandon it. And so the change of government, you know, we celebrate. Yes, I celebrated it for about 24 hours. Yeah, especially seeing some of those people being thrown onto the scrap heap. I love that. I just love that. Uh, but uh, it's not about the change of government. It's got to be a change of direction from every single corner and fabric of our society and our financial base, whatever that is. And it has to be intergenerational too because oh. this three-year electoral cycle is the death of us. Yes. Let's talk about a couple of personalities, uh, if I can. Sure. Uh, I, I'm really pleased to see Cameron Brewer win North Harbour, uh, yeah. that seat out there. A, a really good bloke. You'd know Cam, wouldn't you? Well, I've got a photo that I, I got off Dad uh, the other day, which is a picture of you and Cameron Brewer and and uh, him, him, you know, walking just after you'd uh, won the Auckland mayoralty. So that, that's how long we've known each other. You know. In, I've known you since I was in shorts, and uh, you lived in Papatowie Tawi. Yeah, it goes back Is a long right? way back. No, Manurewa it was. Manurewa, <laughs> and they they don't call it Manurewa now. Uh, the colloquialism is Rewa. Yeah, so that's what the police call it, uh, Rewa. It's yeah. a very dangerous part of Auckland. Yeah, and that, that's where I was brought up. So yeah, I don't think it's that dangerous. But you know it's changed now. But 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 yeah, I, I mean, Dad tells me about the time when you came and knocked on his door, and, and you know you affectionately call him Johnny, and he calls you Johnny. 
Um, you know, it's kind of cute to watch a couple of old old geezers talk call each other Johnny. <laughs> you know. Well, I'll tell you about this old geezer. This old geezer is still working six days a week, and yeah. I've religiously paid tax. I'm still a patriot. I have a lot of hope for this country, uh, and I'm still very supportive of people doing good things well. Yeah. And I'm also very, very supportive of the underdog and someone who isn't a genuine underdog and needs a helping hand. I'm very supportive of those people. I, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic, but while I need to say to the government yet formed listening to this broadcast today, it's got to be a 180-degree turn uh, for the better to march march backwards to march forward. Uh, it can't be business as usual. And we've got to get to the root of the problems, and that is the elites within the civil service and the marification of everything New Zealand and the degradation of us old white people. We've, we've, got, to, we've got to stop division in society. We've got to bring everybody with us, uh, the least amongst us, uh, and we have to act with compassion. But we also have to be stern as well where we need to be stern because that is the compassionate way to actually address some of the societal ills that, that are besetting us that are leading to the increased crime and the fearfulness that Kiwis have. And we, we never used to be fearful you know, living in New Zealand, we didn't lock our doors. We didn't have to protect ourselves with alarms and all of those sorts of things. Something's gone dreadfully wrong. And I think it is the creeping socialism over the years that has taught people, brainwashed people into thinking that the state is the answer for everything. And the state isn't the answer for everything. And uh, we need to build that resilience back into our country of self-sufficiency, a can-do attitude, uh, and a willingness to do the hard things first rather than put them off for later. I couldn't agree more, Well, And, you know, we're, we're going to give this government our support, and, and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I want to see this country paying its way. I want to see this country a proud place that we call New Zealand, the home uh, where so many great soldiers lost their lives uh, for freedom and democracy. I, I want to see... Uh, uh, with pride uh, in our education system that works for everyone and gives jobs for all. And um, I, I just want to see us doing better and taking individual accountability and responsibility for our own actions and saying no to crime, uh, no to gangsters, uh, no to criminals, uh, no to big borrowing, no to big spending, no to big noting, no to big government, uh, and, uh, you know, get on and uh, carve out place in this world where we've uncarved it so successfully and isolated ourselves so dramatically. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, we we have the potential to be the best little country in the world. And unfortunately, over the last six years in particular, but perhaps over the last 30 years, we've degraded our own abilities to such an extent where being the best little country in the world seems like a struggle when it shouldn't be. We are blessed with natural resources in people and on the earth and in the land, and yet we're struggling. And that is a travisty that needs to be reversed. And I agree with you 100% well, well, on that. Well, 
what we need from our parliamentarians uh, in the government and in the government caucus is um, a sense of purpose and direction, a clear mandate they have, a clear way forward has never been clearer because we've come out of the mist, and they've got to be resolute, and they've got to be brave, and they've got to do the right thing and do things right, and they'll stay around for a long time and save this country, Wales. So good luck to Lux, uh, good luck to Seymour, and good luck to Winston. And by the way, Seymour is the outstanding parliamentarian of the last 10 years. Yeah, but he, he had some missteps in the election. He focused too much on Winston Peters, and it cost him, you know, and let that be a of lesson course. to him, and I hope he learns that lesson. Of course, he's got a lot of lessons to learn, but he worked harder than anyone else. He's smarter than anyone else. His politics are purer than anyone else. He does have his faults. I've known him since a kid of 12. He worked yep. for me in my office as a speechwriter, as you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but he's a good lad, and good on him and Brooke Van Velden. And um, we'll give Winston Peters all the support and encouragement he needs uh, to do a good job for this country. Hey, because, wow, it's got to be beyond these jokers. It's got to be about the future of the country and the kids yet born, isn't it? Absolutely, it has to be. And and that's the I'll problem you, that we've I'll, had. Well, I'll leave you with that. Uh, love talking to you and uh, best Fantastic to have you on, and, and we'll have to get you on again sometime, Banksy. A real pleasure. Enjoyed talking to you. My gosh, I got a bit teary there, but Banksy really touched my heart that day in the hospice, doing something he didn't have to, giving my mother a gift she could never repay, a touching final gift from him to her, and that's why I'll die in a ditch for him. Tell me your thoughts on what Banksy had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR. Casey Costello has been on The Crunch before, and it was a very popular interview with heaps of replays. She's the real deal and now has a chance to power up New Zealand First by bringing in another MP if she can win the Port Waikato by-election. To discuss her campaign and more, she's on the line and with me now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Casey. Good to have you. Thanks very much, Cam. Appreciate you having me on. Well, you've had a bit of a false start, haven't you? You've got right into the campaign, you know, you're launching and everything going forward, and then we had the unfortunate demise of the ACT Party candidate, uh, truly sad, and then the vagaries of the Electoral Act kick in, and so we have a by-election coming up uh, near the end of this month. Yeah, I I said it was like sort of you run a marathon and then you get to the finish line and someone says, oh, we've just added 10Ks onto it, so, yeah. Are you up for that extra 10Ks? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really, it's actually probably easier because you can now... You're now campaigning purely on who you are and your suitability as a person to represent the electorate. You, you sort of, um, you, you're not so much having to 
double up with the party policies and the party position. It's just it's it's very clean and it's just about who you want to see represent the community. So, reality is uh, with this by-election is it's a two-horse race in reality between yourself and Andrew Bailey uh, as people, rather than you know pushing for the party vote and all of that. But you're already in because you're number three on the New Zealand First list. If you win the seat, there's a benefit, isn't there, to New Zealand First that is of greater importance than any pitch that Andrew Bailey can make, and that yeah. is that the number nine on your list is is a great candidate with incredible skills who would then come yep. in because you'd go off the list, and then, of course, he'd come in on the list, which means yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's um, Dr. David Wilson, great guy, great mind, just would be outstanding for us and for the country, I think, to get him on board. And and that's and it's really hard to kind of pitch that message because, I mean, already MMP is difficult enough to understand. Yeah. And then adding this to the mix is really hard. But, yeah, fr- from our point of view, and, you know, it's like that, no pressure, Casey, but, you know. <laughs> we need, we need <laughs> you to win this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, but, I mean, that, that is the bonus, isn't it? Because th- there is no bonus for Andrew Bailey to be elected as the MP. Everyone assumes he's going to win this. And if he doesn't win it, there's no real change to the National Party. And there's no, no significant name that would add to the benefit of Parliament and the country as a general. But. New Zealand First has got David there that can come in as well. And also yeah. would provide that extra, in my view, it would provide a little bit of extra backbone for New Zealand First to stiffen up the government. Yeah, and, and that's the skill set that he brings is, is incredible. And and I think the other thing is that people have got to realise that they don't lose Andrew Bailey. You know, he's 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 there, highly likely to get a ministerial position. It's that's that sort of, you know, they get two representatives, yeah. Um, both, you know, Andrew with his experience and, and me with, you know, this is my town. This is a huge opportunity for me to be able to be a voice for our region. Um, and, you know, to and that's what I've kind of kept going on about is that, you know, this is about, to me, this is my home and this is why I want to stand for it. You know, it's not just a political position. It's, you know, I'm already an MP. This is because I really, really want to be, the representative of Port Waikato, and um, yeah, yeah, so that, that's why I'm, I'm fighting for it. And the big bonus for us, as you said, is that we get another, not only another candidate, but a great candidate, you know, someone yeah. who would just be outstanding. So, yeah, so oh, I fight on. Yeah. I sleep less and I fight on. <laughs> sleep less, fight on. Uh, I guess there's a bonus too in that your other MPs who have just been elected with you because of New Zealand's first success at the at the election uh, can now come and help as well in the yeah. electorate and boost your candidacy around the electorate. Of course, National can do exactly the same. They can roll out, you know, essentially what are going to be cabinet ministers to infest the electorate and, you know, push the, the, the vote uh, for the National candidate. It's a real two-horse race. I mean, I, don't, I can't see anybody else getting it. Labor hasn't even bothered uh, Act didn't replace their candidate, and everybody else doesn't matter. So this is a real two-horse race where there's some real benefits for people to back Casey Costello, aren't there? 
Well, I, I think so. <laughs> I think there's some real benefits. Yeah. I, I think the, the 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 part that I kind of is that I've proven that I'm not, you know, that I'll stand for the for the issues that everybody's a bit afraid to speak up on. Um, I, you know, I come from a police background. I police this area. This is where I did most of my police service. Um, I know the issues that are impacting us from a crime perspective, the justice system and how it's become so difficult to get anything dealt with or or even taken, um, given priority through because there's just such a backlog on on the court system. Mm. I can, you know, I can see what can be done. And I and and the other problem we've got is that we kind of like we're with this we sort of got split in half through the super city. Mm. And we we kind of sit at the tail end of the Auckland um, Council mega machine and the top end of the Waikato Regional, and so having something that'll bring us together because um, we're a oddly shaped electorate as well it's, in terms of where our boundaries really, are. I mean, it's really strange. Half is in the Waikato and half's in in Auckland. Yeah, uh, and and that's why it's really because you know from everything you know Auckland Transport in terms of how our roadings divided up and where the expenditure is and um, all of those sort of things need somebody who's prepared to kind of knock on doors and and bring people together to get some solutions and I think that's what I, I bring to the table is that I I will have that availability and you know I'm accessible I you know. I'm quite happy for everyone to know know where I live, what my phone number is. You know, just you know, give me a shout, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the map is of the electorate is is weird. You know, mm. you've got huge amounts of uh, population around Pukekohe, uh, and you know, bordering on you know, Karaka is extending south across the border. There, there's large pockets of urban uh, centres there. South of the Waikato River is kind of desolate, <laughs> with with all due respect. I mean, there's not a lot down that coast, uh, Port Waikato, down to Tiakau. Uh, not many people in there, so it's largely an Auckland-centric thing. But like you say, Auckland has kind of abandoned that area. Yeah. And the storms in February last year, uh, earlier this year, have left roads devastated. They haven't even been repaired, like the main road out to Afitu, is still cut. Yeah. Uh, you know, still, and, still got the stop go lights. <laughs> yeah. Stop go lights one way. It, it's like it's forgotten, like, because, you know, never mind. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's only a few people who live there. You've got a yep. case that you could push on that against the, the incumbent, which is Andrew Bailey, because what's he done since February, you know, yeah. to, to, to push those things? And, and no one can criticize you for that. You weren't the MP. He was the MP. So this is an old fashioned, Stump style uh, election yep. campaign where yeah, it's, you can it's actually knock hold on them the to account. Yeah, knock on yeah. the doors and hold them to account. What's Andrew Bailey done? And yeah. and you can make, you know, without I mean, you're not the kind of person to make grandiose uh, promises. You like to deliver on things, but you know this is the thing that people seem to be missing. And I and I see that in the electorate, uh, in the media, the way they're portraying this is this is almost a foregone conclusion. The National Party's going to win this. But by-elections do deliver up sometimes very strange yeah. results. And and this is the thing, I think, where MMPs kind of muddied the waters around the, that idea of that, you know, the local electorate MP being accountable, having the office you walk into, and that person being there, you know, that person having to take your call and front up. 
um, and and be answerable to what's been delivered. You know, soil erosion is a massive and coastal erosion, like mm. the catchment areas, the all of these sort of things that affect. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the the area, we're kind of like a microcosm of New Zealand. We've got well, the steel mill, which is a massive, massive industry for for the area. Yeah, we the with the you know the food basket of you know. New Zealand, really, like we've we've got all of this all productive gardens, land, you know. all the market gardens, all of the greenhouses, all of those sort of, and then we've got dairy and beef and all of that sort of stuff producing. And so probably if we can the get, largest swamp in New Zealand as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and if we can get this moving, like if we can prove that you know you can get some good outcomes and put some solutions in place um, in this area, then it's a model that can go out to to everywhere else. And, and it's wrenching that, which I think has happened a lot throughout the country, is this centralised control that was pushed through from this um, the Labor government that was, you know, everything was being done from Wellington. Um, we're not a one-size-fit-all country. Like every region, every has particularly in agriculture and horticulture and farming, we, we have our own issues and own de- ways to deal with them. Mm. Um, you know, flood protection and catchment areas is totally different here than, you know, we don't snow, so we don't have to worry about the stuff that they're worrying about in the South Island. You know, the, this is this is why yeah. it's important to have strong local representation. And I don't claim to be an expert on these things, but I know great people have great networks, good people to, you know, with expert knowledge that you know, that's how we used to solve things. You know, that was how we always used to, you got the right people from the place with 40 years experience living on this land to tell you, you know, what will work and what won't work. I mean, it um, is an amazing electorate. I mean, is it, it is an amazing electorate. You know, you've got, yeah. you know, the West Coast, the, all the desolation of, of that. You've got yeah. high industry, you know, like you say, with the, the steel mill. You've got urban areas, Pukekohe, uh, you know, going up and towards Karaka. Then you've got across the motorway, you know, all the way down to, to Kaufata, you've got uh, winemaking and all of that happening around there. Uh, you've got amazing wetlands uh, and all the way out almost really to the, to the coast. Uh, mm. On the other side, it's one of the few electorates that almost goes from coast to coast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a massive electorate. I mean, I don't think people understand uh, what they're actually looking at here with Port Waikato. Yeah. And, and those communities, you know, if you look at back, you know, around regional New Zealand, these small communities, they, you know, this is our town. Like, you know, to Kofita may be, but they're they're an identity. They're they're their own town. They don't want mm. to be sort of seen as, you know, just an afterthought. They've they've got a strong identity. Waiuku's amazing town. Like it's it's oh, yeah. really, but growing and and developing, and Same it just needs that representation. Yeah. And um, so, and I mean, Pocono's where I live, and it's just, it's gone crazy. Like, it's massive. Well, you, you drive down there, and there's all these new houses. You know, yeah. Waioku, I've always uh, had a bit of a soft spot for. Um, my cousin was actually the, the cop in Waioku for many, many years. Yeah. Um, so you probably know him. His name was Greg Melsop. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? too. yeah definitely. So that's my cousin, you know, and that was back in the days when you actually – were alone in uh, in oh, yeah. you had to deal with things. Uh, let's just say creatively. <laughs> yeah, I I I remember policing night shift in Pukki because the lights used to go off 
at about yeah. 11 o'clock at night, all the streetlights went off and so it was all darkness and so night shift down there was a definitely you – you didn't have a lot of backup support down there. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was one of those – uh, towns where if a certain uh, crime of a certain style might be white wear stolen, you went and knocked on that family's door and said, look, you mate, you've, you've taken diabolical liberties. Can you just take the freezer back? <laughs> they, they don't, they wouldn't do it these days that way, but no. that was how it was handled back in, back in the day. You know, you went and knocked on the door and you, and you said, look guys, take it back. Um, yep. and, and we're kind of missing I've just been talking to to John Banks, and um, he was telling, you know, me how we need to do a a one eighty return. You know, we have to actually turn this country physically around from where we've come from in the last six years, and in fact, it's probably a bit longer than that. Uh, it's probably over the last twenty or thirty years. We need to actually backtrack and go back to what works, and that's your experience, isn't it? You you've been a a copper, uh, yeah. You, you you've uh, dealt with all types of society in policing in those areas, and then of course you you've got all your other work that you've done since you know taxpayers union Hobson's pledge all the rest of it yeah right. and and i think I think people kind of misconstrue when when we say about you know we need to go we're not saying you've got to go back in time, but we do have the opportunity to look at the stuff that was working. Yes, and take from that what was effective, and just like you said about the community-based policing, and we'd go through centralise and community and centralise and community, but but it's not an either-or solution. But you do have those strong identities that know their community, that understand you know what what the issues are, um, and respond to those vulnerabilities within the community and deal with it. And the centralised policing model, where you know you kind of um, fly in and fly out, you respond to a job and you're gone again. Um, that doesn't fix the problem. And, and we've kind of got to a position now, we have more people um, sitting in offices diagnosing, you know, how we're going to eradicate crime and less people actually out there responding to it. You know, we've got to shift that around and, and make sure that we have the resources. You know, the 24-7 police stations went, you know, those sort of things that, you know, at, at three o'clock in the morning, you know, there, there was a building you could go and knock on the doors and someone would be there. Um, and it meant mm. something, you know, and, and, and those are the sort of, um, back to basic stuff that it's, it's not a nostalgic thing. It's a let's, let's look at what was working before and doesn't need to be revisited. Um, cause, you know, we can learn a lot from our own history. Yeah. You know, I've got a, a couple of mates down Port Waikato Wave. You go to Point Port Waikato, turn left, and carry on to halfway to nowhere. Um, <laughs> there's no policing down there, no. right? If you live on that road, the only policing you've got is what you and your neighbours organise. Yeah, and you know they tell me about the rustling that goes on, the people who come down. Yeah, you know, that they actually don't keep stock near the road anymore. Mm. But they're also the, some of the most generous people. Around, like, you know, one of them was telling me about uh, somebody who was cruising the road. They got a phone call on the, you know, on their local community uh, notice board, I guess, from want of a better word. It might have been WhatsApp or something. Hey, watch out for this car. They're cruising slowly. They don't, you know, don't look like they belong here. The farmers come out, block the roads on either end of where they are, and then they have a chat. And uh, yeah. you know, they're saying that 
you know, one one family there, they, they looked like they were looking for a sheep. And uh, they said to me, you know, what are you doing here? You, know, you don't look like you're, you're, you know, you're from here. What's going on? They said, oh, look, you know, we you know, really need some meat. And they said, okay, well, come with me. And they went down to the farm chiller and there was a, you know, an, an old ewe that was hanging there that for whatever reason, and they gave it to them. So they're actually really generous as well. It's at mm. the same time as trying to prevent a crime. Like that old bit of meat, sheep meat, was hanging in the chiller. That was might have been to feed the dogs. It might have been to to feed the family, whatever. It yeah. wasn't a valuable animal anymore. It might have died for whatever reason. But and, that crime that's, that's happening there is just so sad as well. You know, yeah. that, that there are people that are, they're not rustling in large numbers, but they're going and grabbing something of opportunity. There's a, a sheep or a lamb or, or even a cattle beast uh, that's at close at hand. But imagine the position that person is in that they feel that they need to go and do that. Yeah. And and that's the differential. That is the those that are doing what, what they desperately need in order to provide for their families and those that are just causing harm and profiting mm. of, of other people's pain. And that's the part where I see that those small communities can really because I mean you all you need to do is go on the you know the marketplace and the, the local community pages and there's constantly, you know, is this your cat? I found this wallet, I found the set of keys of the those those are the sort of great things that happen. And I've never seen one so far that someone hasn't gone, Oh, that's my cousins or yeah, I'll get that or you know, helping each other out is kind of that that part that we sort of missing and I and that's why I love this you know I love this community it's it's great you know mm. and like you just said you know your your cousin they're, they're all we all know each other it's, it's just incredible crazy the number of people that have reached out since I've been campaigning that um you know oh yeah I used to go to you know oh, I was a because um, my dad was into horse racing so you know there's there's that whole community that Oh, you're John Costello's daughter, like you know those mm, sort of things. Mm, it's, it's just mm. great, you know. That's that's what I, I think we. That's the country we were built on. Well, I mean, it, it's like your brother coming to to lunch with my mates, right? He's, yeah. he, he's, <laughs> he he started coming since I spoke to you last, you know, and you raised that. Um, he's been coming a couple of times to to lunch, and uh, yeah. he wasn't there. He wasn't there on Monday, but he should be. You know, he should should join in with the rest of Cam's buddies oh, that he, uh, come along. He, he had to head up north because he's gone up to to my mum lives up north. So yeah. we all have our turn about going checking on mum. You know, I f- I find um, the Port Waikato electorate fascinating because of all the different things that occur within there. Now I've got a mate uh, and I help him out occasionally, or I did in the past. We had to do a couple of repossessions uh, of some cars that he'd rented out down that way, and you know, one of them. Uh, you know, you come across the Tuakau Bridge there, uh, hang a right, follow the river, uh, and then up in the hills there beside the road, there's some some communities that are really, uh, you'd only have to describe them as impoverished, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like living under canvas. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, may have, been, may have been summer, may have been not, but, you know, we had to go and get this car. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to get the bash. Uh, one time when I was up there uh, from this particular family, we got the car, and um, but I felt really bad having to take it off them because it. I mean, it's not that they were short of transport. There's plenty of cars there, but but 
the cars were the most valuable things they had. Mm. And it really uh, shook me that day when we had to go and get that car and and take that back to Auckland. Um, but they were taking diabolical liberties at the time, but I was still mindful of the position that they were in. And they were only, you know, 15 minutes from Pukekohe. They are only 40 minutes from Papakura. Yeah. And in living, essentially in a, in a in a shanty, and yeah. and I never realised that there was people that close to Auckland that were living like that, and it and it shocked me to my core. And I will have no doubt that they're still living there and exactly in that position. And there, there's lots of situations like that where you you. You kind of get trapped in a position where it's hard to 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 get your way out, and if that's all you know, mm. um, then it's really hard to find your way out. And those are those sort of wraparound services and support that you need. But sometimes this, these individuals that don't even know what's available to them mm. don't know what what opportunities are there because you know navigating you know a government website to try and find what you're entitled to is almost you know you, you, it's like you know, a road scholar needs to, to find the right answers. I mean, the yeah. reality is, is these people don't have computers. Yeah. If they are navigating a government website, it's on a phone. But but even then, down that road, on the way to Port Waikato, there's not much coverage, mm. right? So, yeah. so they're impoverished physically, probably mentally as well, uh, definitely financially, and also technologically-wise. And I, and I don't know how to fix that other than I, when, you know, this is not far from the largest city in Auckland. Like literally yeah. it's less than two kilometres to the border of Auckland, which runs right down the middle of Port Waikato Electric. And there's and, two and this, societies that are existing that close to each other. And this is where I think that the empowerment of local community you know, you know that the the stuff that local communities are able to achieve, and we see that whenever there's you know these big storms or there's a disaster, these communities wrap around and and help each other yeah. out without wavering, and it's that stuff is that, and that's why I think it's a great community and great area because you have the opportunity to do that and to to get people to come together and work on the successes, but it's just kind of having someone that that you know is going to you know, set things in motion. You know, how how can we do this? What are your issues? How can we make this? Um, and getting people. And I think that's what what I like. You know, that that's all the way through my working career. It's the success of the team. It's being able to build people um, that you know work to their strengths, identify who's the good people, and how how you can get the most out of what they're able to do, and bring those teams together and make them successful. And and that's kind of what I, I see as as a electorate MP position is to kind of identify those people that have um, the willingness and capacity to kind of step up and be involved, and how can I facilitate them to be successful in their communities, and what could be done. And and you know I I, I really look forward to the challenge. I really want to you know mm. be part of that kind of thing. You know the the old you know going back nostalgically. You know when you you're your local borough council mayor used to be the guy that ran the butcher shop. You know, yeah. you'd, you'd walk in there and go like, you know, I'll, I'll have, um, you know, 12 sausages. And by the way, the stormwater drains backed up, you know, like it was <laughs> that sort of, 
that sort of environment, you know, and I, I think that's where you can get some real success from your communities is having that kind of, um, you know, somebody who's available and contactable and, and how does that work for, for those um, well, separate isolated was, locations. Yeah, and likely it was fixed by him ringing um, Bob, the uh, the guy yeah. on the road who, who <laughs> happens to have a digger um, handy. Can you get whip round there and clean that drain yeah. out for me, mate? Um, you know, we'll make sure the next sausage sizzle we get everything from you. You know, that is how yep. things worked. Yeah. You know, the super city, everyone said, uh, you know, this is how we're going to improve things. But on the margins, things haven't really improved, have yeah. they? I mean, we've we've got, like we discussed earlier, the Afito Peninsula Road that that's still yeah. got stop go lights on it. Here we are, months and months and months after the actual event. We're likely to have some significant weather events with the way things are, are panning out again, and nothing's fixed. Yeah, and and that's the you know the the aspect of the super city was that you know there was to be a review of whether it delivered what it promised and, and whether it created the savings and efficiencies that it promised, that review's never taken place. That's never happened. You know, it's just they trucked on, carrying on as if, um, you know, we're just going to assume it's been successful. And yet if you talk to the people in in my electorate, they, they, that's it hasn't been successful. And there's numerous reasons why it hasn't been successful. So, you know, somebody needs to stand up and go, hang on, like we want some answers here. How much is it saved? Nothing. And how much is it delivered in benefits? Nothing. So, yeah. So, so somebody needs to call time. Well, somebody needs to stand up for the Port Waikato community. And I guess you're sitting across multiple city or or council uh, boundaries, but the vast number of of your constituents are in Auckland City. Uh, Mm. Do you see it your role as the local MP to actually go and sit down with Wayne Brown? And other key councillors uh, up there, and and you know, that are close to where you are as well, and say, okay, guys, things aren't working. Yeah. How can we make these work? Yeah. And and what are their rub points? And and you know, what where's our common ground? Where's our rub points? And let's kind of work through mm. because this is what the constituents are saying. How are we going to fix this? Um, and you know, and and empower individuals to be able to take some action as well as, you know, hold hold their feet to the fire. Because, um, you know, that, and I, I absolutely do, because, I mean, it's, it is the the majority of the population sits within Auckland Council, but we also have that crossover with the Waikato region. We have a number of smaller iwis that are kind of silenced because there's much bigger, um, um, and you know, bigger entities in play and so it's about how do we make sure that the the balance is being achieved from the smaller communities as well. Just talking about community, this is a David and Goliath battle that you're in. You're up against the National Party and the machine that the National Party has where they can, you know, not it's not very far for them to to drive people in from you know Papakura electorate, which is one of the largest majorities, you know, with Judith Collins competent MP there and a huge machine that, that keeps her operating. Uh, you know, a little bit further north, you've got the resources and uh, the influence of uh, councillors that, that are in there and also the, the National Party machine, you know, in, as a whole, New Zealand First is under-resourced, uh, ill-equipped really uh, to to have this David and Goliath battle. 
but you've got yeah. this experience, you know, with community uh, involvement. How can how can people help you? How can they get in touch with you to to volunteer to help on the ground with this campaign in the few short weeks that we've got left? Well, the easiest way is um, just kc at nzfirst.nz. Um, that that's our um, volunteer network. So all all of those sort of things. Um, you know, and and just reach out if if you're able to to do something. I've I've got you know great team, but likewise you know we've had a you know we've got a teams coming in from all around the country to to help this campaign as well. Yeah. Um. And I think the strong message is that you know they don't lose their MP, they don't lose Andrew Bailey, but they yeah. might get a, a a bit more um from having a a, a different voice and a different um um sort of opportunity to be heard um, yeah. that they haven't had before. So, yeah, so it's, it, and it, it's David and Goliath, but, you know, we're, we're up for the fight and, you know, everybody wrote off New Zealand first in this election and, and we proved them wrong. So um, I think we can do it again. Yeah, and, and I guess the pictures is that you can actually power up uh, by yeah. voting. Voting for you for the local MP means that you get another MP coming in off the list uh, with skills and ability and, and stiffens the resolve of the government, uh, yeah. gives them that experience uh, that's added. Uh, whereas voting for Andrew Bailey, um, you don't lose him as an MP, but there's no gain either um, by yeah. electing him as the, as the electorate MP because it's all, always already resolved. So, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting pitch. Um It'll be hard to to get the the blue rinse brigade to actually think outside the box, but I guess you've got an an option to to do that. When I say blue rinse, yeah. I mean you know you uh, always vote national. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's very rare that by elections come along and you can actually challenge their thinking a little bit. Yeah, and it's unusual because we're both already there, like we're both lost in pays. So so yeah. you kind of often you'll have one that's you know that. The, the sitting MP and then someone fighting to get in. Um, we're both there. So, you know, he, here's a chance to to change um, the status quo. So, yeah, we'll give it a crack. I know you can't disclose anything about, you know, what you know about negotiations and things like that, but what are some of the areas uh, now that we know broadly what the makeup of the government is going to be, what are some of the areas that you'd be hoping that New Zealand First can make an impact in in government, uh, participating in government rather than perhaps sitting on the crossbenches like has been suggested? I, I think that, I mean, it was pretty clear from our manifesto. There's, there's a lot of common ground, I think, if you look at, at where we're all sitting. But our manifesto was you know, pretty clear around, you know, our desire to have our democracy protected and ensure that there is this equality before the law um, and the individual freedoms around, you know, having a more in-depth um, COVID inquiry. Um, and so, so amongst all those, there's some really common ground um, and just getting the country moving, you know, getting things, yeah. um, the economy moving and stuff, some real practical steps towards that. So, yeah, it's um, well well above my pay grade at this point, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> those are my wish lists. Yeah. I mean, the, the COVID inquiry, people have said it's too difficult. We've already got an inquiry happening. And last week I was speaking to David Farron. He thought that was actually in one of the easiest ones to solve. 
simply by redrafting the terms of reference and maybe adding a couple of extra commissioners into the com- into the commission yep. of inquiry. I would have thought yeah. that that would be an easy one to to tick off uh, for Winston sitting down with Christopher Luxon. And, and there should be no reason why David Seymour would oppose that either, um, because the terms of reference that Ardern set were incredibly narrow. And yeah. it, it lo- almost looked self-serving uh, from the way that the terms of references were created. And, and I think if you looked at, I mean, Acts on their website's got some policy positions recognising that there, there needed to be a broadening of the scope and stuff. So I don't, I don't think there's um, a huge shift. Um, and, and you know, I think that that exists amongst that's, I mean, all of us have gone into this discussion and, and that, you know, said repeatedly, this is about achieving a stable government. And mm. I, I, you know, I think it's very achievable. And, I mean, that's um, the thing, isn't it? That a lot of people mistake uh, decision making as being Winston making all the decisions when the reality is, is Winston's actually a team player and it's in the hands of the caucus to make decisions on where things are going and what you're going to achieve. And, and I, I, I think that's true. You know, that, that came out really clearly after, you know, the, everybody was criticising 2017 and, and what mm. occurred. Um, it was a democratic process then, um, you know, that this is, this is not, you know, um, it's, it's a cooperative process, and I think you know it's uh, it's going to be interesting what pans out over the next few days. But I, I, I think it's, um, it's it's all indications of things going really well. The, the media are trying to talk this up as being something that's going to drag on for weeks and weeks and weeks. What's your view on that? Do you think it's going to last weeks, or is it more days? I'd, yeah, because I'd, it's I'm not in, involved in the intricacies of it, but I I, I see no. Nothing. Why the media is saying that? I think it's just a scaremongering dialogue. I, I can't see that they've got any justification to be talking about this dragged out process. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's just the fact that uh, everyone is practicing message discipline uh, and actually not talking to the media, so they're having to fill the gap uh, yeah. by not having politicians with their own reckons. And you know, as we've seen. From you know, even election night, where Tover O'Brien was saying that you know, even if you stood on the grave of a family member, and uh, and uh, uh, really thought hard, no one would ever have picked a result like this. You know, everyone in New Zealand first is probably thinking, well, we picked it. Uh, yeah. Everyone in ACT is probably thinking, well, we picked it, and everyone in National is thinking, well, we picked it. This is going to yeah. happen. It's only the people in the bubble uh, and you know the Wellington bureaucrats who didn't pick it. Um, yeah. But it was obvious, really, that there was a, a mood for change. And, you know, 53% of the voting population didn't vote for Labour, the Greens, or, or the Maori Party. And that's and, a majority. And the, and the result was almost, you know, in, in completely in line with the polling. I think the, the only thing that was national actually got more than the polling was saying, but it was it was all pretty in, in line with the polls. So it was, um, you know, we were, we were tracking... Yeah, you know, forward each time, each poll that came out. So, yeah, and that's kind of where we finished up. So, yeah, once you get over that five percent, it kind of cements in, and you mm. can get you can get some gains. The thing that you know astonished me about the election is that this literally you know, was the worst government that we've ever had in living memory. In fact, 
since the beginning of democracy in New Zealand, if you listen to Michael Bassett, and, and he's a political historian, and there's no reason not to listen to Michael Bassett. Uh, he said it's the worst government ever, but National couldn't get over forty uh, percent. In fact, mm. I just I was doing, analyzing some numbers before you know talking to you, uh, because somebody commented on my website that uh, Christopher Luxon has a mandate, and uh, I thought I thought really a mandate? Okay, thirty eight percent, thirty eight point naught six percent, and I looked up twenty seventeen. And what the National, uh, Labour Party got in 2017 when the National Party people were saying uh, Ardern doesn't have a mandate to govern, she doesn't have this, she doesn't have that. Well, it's less than 2% different. Mm. Right? It's less than 2%. It's it's 1.6% or something, the, the difference between difference. Labour in yeah. 2017 and National in 2023. And so... If the National Party thinks that Christopher Luxon has a mandate, then surely Jacinda Ardern had a mandate in 2017, but they won't admit that. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. I hadn't looked at those stats. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these are little tiny things that political tragics like me look at, <laughs> right, because we sit there and go, well, hang on a second. Let's deal with facts and let's deal with reality. And, you know, that then goes to all the minor parties as well. The yeah. polls were saying that only New Zealand First Act uh, and, and the Maori Party and the Green Party as minor parties were going to make it into parliament. And we had all of these smaller parties saying, no, 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 the polls are wrong. People aren't, yeah. aren't answering honestly. And we're going to get, you know, in one case, one leader said they were going to get 2 million votes, which means pretty much that would be over 50% of, <laughs> of the vote. Uh, yeah, and the polls were right. You said the polls were right. I know the polls were right. I've been studying elections since I was in nappies. You really ignore polls at your peril, don't you? Yeah, and and it's. I mean, you can. I mean, there was some nuances around you know electorate seats and who was going to win, but that's where I think people misunderstand how MNP works. Still, that mm. you kind of think, oh well, how does that impact? Um, but we also, when you, you can't go back to how everything broke down in the end. I mean, I had a lot of sympathy for you know the the minor parties who arose out of a need to you know feeling that they weren't being heard mm. and and wanting to have their opportunity to be heard. But we also had the the experience that you know we 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 tracked according to the polls. We we delivered what you know the polling was saying. It was sort of a, a, a good benchmark. But I think people forgot that I, th I think there was a real sense that we didn't want to have that situation of a majority government again. I think we'd been stung by having a single party majority government and everybody mm. was kind of determined that we weren't going to end up in that situation. And I wonder how much that impacted how people voted versus voting for the major party from shifting away. I, I, I don't know whether that was a, a, a telling component. But that, it's an interesting. You know, I, it's an interesting component because I hadn't thought about it like that. You know that we've yeah. been so shocked by what a majority government did that yeah. we that we don't actually want that ever again. And so we've powered up the ACT Party in New Zealand First to act yeah. as a bulwark or a handbrake or whatever is necessary to stop a large party doing whatever the hell they want. Yeah. That that was my sense anyway. There was that idea that because we sort of talked about like it's clearly now MPs here to stay. We've we've cemented it. It's not, 
and we had a taste of what it was like to go back to a you know effectively a first past the post kind of government and we sort of went oh no we're not having that again we'll stick we'll stick this way yeah well we don't want to i mean we did reject uh first past the post uh it may have been a mistake but it 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 as uh, some a friend of mine always says, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But it, but it's interesting the things that persist because you know I had a discussion the other day with my mates around uh, the lunch table, and um, they were talking about oh well you know the impact of selecting a speaker and how that means you get one less vote, and uh, you know I had to say to them look guys for twenty seven years that hasn't been the case. And they went what? I said, no, <laughs> under MMP, the standing rules in Parliament were changed, that the, the Speaker actually gets included in the votes that the whip says. We don't no longer have these division bells where people march out through the corridors. It doesn't happen anymore, right? They call mm. for a vote. The party whips declare their number, and if they're the governing party or the party that includes the Speaker, their vote is included in the number that's that's given. Yeah. Uh, so, and they were they were shocked. They were gobsmacked. Yeah. <laughs> I said to them, "This has been the way it has been for twenty seven years. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time we get to the end of this cycle, it'll be the way it's been for thirty years." Yeah. And, and we also saw this with this unbelievable misunderstanding of how voting for a minor party that doesn't make the threshold. Yeah. is a wasted vote and how not the votes get reallocated, but the effect of the votes gets reallocated. Yeah. And, you know, somebody yeah. uh, just you know, on my website this morning was saying exactly that. They were saying, oh, no, I've talked to the Electoral Commission. They've said that the votes are, are thrown out. Well, well it's, it's, it's the votes <laughs> are, but the effect is It's the percentage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the percentage. And, you know, if that was the case, there would be nearly 6% of the seats in Parliament would now be vacant, mm. right? But they're not. They're, we've got all of the seats allocated. We've got 100% or 100% plus one of the seats. We've got an overhang, so it's actually 100% plus three uh, yeah. are allocated. And the easiest way to to understand that is let's say Labour and National both got 45% and there was 10% wasted. Right, so ninety yep. percent was uh, counted and ten percent was wasted. If the what the electoral commission says is a hundred percent true that the votes are thrown out and then and the percentage that was wasted isn't counted, then there'd only be ninety percent of the hundred and twenty seats filled. Yeah, yep. right. But that's not yep. the case, right? A hundred percent of the hundred and twenty seats are filled, and therefore the effect of the wasted vote is it does get reallocated. Yep. And, and, the, and, and but, the fact that, like you say, 30 years on, nearly, we're still explaining that process and how it all works and how, and, and even down to the overhang, you know, discussion, people still trying to get their heads around how an overhang works and how that kind of impacts. And and then you get, you know, think you've got all that sorted and then you have the Port Waikato situation where we've got a whole nother, another situation well, arising. So, Well, just on that overhang, I mean, you know, I heard John Tamahiri the other day saying, that uh, because they won six of the seven Maori electorates, that they have the mandate to speak for all Maori. Mm. Well, hang on a second. The Maori Party got two point something percent. Yeah. Right. So Maori make up uh, close to seventeen percent of the population, but the Maori Party only got close to three percent. 
It's hardly yep. a mandate. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the numbers they got about yeah. I mean, and even if you proportioned it to the number of Māori that you know on the Māori roll, they're, mm. they're not even a majority of that. So you know that that kind of and that's what I keep coming back to this idea that you know this idea that Māori, being Māori, we we kind of um, forego our individual identity, and we're apparently supposed to think and vote and act as if we're a Borg from um you know star trek, trek you know it was just just that, that that we are you know we all think and act the same and all you have to do is look at the Māori role votes in terms of how it distributes across the parties and know that you know Māori vote just like everyone else and based upon what's the best representation based for on need. our our needs and um yeah. and that's why nearly half of Māori aren't on the Māori role you know it was because well, that, that's right and, you know and you look at the top three places in New Zealand first, you've got Winston Peters, Shane Jones, Casey Costello, three Maori who don't subscribe to that view of John Tamahiri that the Maori party now is the official voice of Maori in yeah. New Zealand. Uh, and the reality is, is the Maori party represents a hard left uh, view on the world, uh, a rather heroic assumption uh, and rewrite of the Treaty of Waitangi at the expense of every other New Zealander. And they really don't have a mandate. If they actually, if those Maori seats disappeared and they tried to stand on the, on their platform, they'd end up with zero seats. Mm. So it's a, it's a, I call it a Maori manda, which is a little bit facetious. Uh, but, but there's no other way to describe those seven seats other than uh, a, a gerrymandering of the system that we no longer need. 34% of parliament is Maori. Right? And and the fact that there is this, um, you know, I mean, if you consider Maori, we iwi and hapu centric. The best representation is more confined local representation, not massive geographical areas that are allocated to Maori seats. Mm. And if you had better local representation, you would get better outcomes for those communities, including the Māori in those communities. But the, this structure doesn't serve and it hasn't served the best interests of Māori for some time. And all you have to do is go through the what has been delivered, what is the outcomes, what is the benefits that, that have been delivered. And aside from a lot of, you know, differentiation by race and, and um, you know, um, advocating a victim narrative, there's been not delivery of outcomes, and that was where you need the accountability um, to say, well, what have you done? What have you delivered? Mm. And you know, the the quote of the the that really struck me was when um, you know the the Māori Party referenced the fact that they their role will be to the, be the pebble in your shoe. You know, well, that's so, so they're, <laughs> yes. So so their objective, their their political objective, is to be annoying. How is that benefiting Māori? You know, to be to be annoying is not a political objective, um, and and I think Māori, we deserve a lot more than you know someone that's going to make their political stand to be just a nuisance. I mean, that's just appalling. Yeah, I mean, I look at some of those electorates that you talk about, Ikaroa Rafati, for example. What commonality is there between Nati Paro in the north and and Nati Kahanunu in the south? There's almost none. Yeah, uh, you know, we look at look at Wairiki uh, electorate as well. You have got Tuwharitoa around Lake Taupo, 
Uh, you've got two hoi in the middle of the Uruwaras and multiple other iwi uh, out on the coast in the Bay of Plenty. There's no commonality there other than the word Maori. And so you've got one person who's representing them, and there's this arrogant assumption that they represent all of Maori because, well, we won six out of the seven Maori seats. It's divisive. Yeah, and that's the part that if that, that skill and capability of those politicians that have put their names forward, if they were dedicated to their local area and being able to represent the local iwi in a much you know, more compliant, and that's what the Royal Commission in the 80s said, was that MMP would remove the relevance of those seats because you would have increased better local representation that was able to, you know, and, and would encourage greater Māori representation because you're engaged in your local community. Um, and and they fight against it. But I don't think they're fighting against it because, you know, it's it's going to reduce outcomes for Māori. It's it's about, you know, um, you know re- retaining a political relevance, not retaining what's best for Māori. And I think that's what we need to have those discussions about. Well, I mean, that's what Winston uh, Peters said at the launch of your campaign for the by-election. He wants to remove the Maori seats to howls of outrage, of course. Uh, but that's been a long-standing position in New Zealand first, and they've never been in a position to be able to do that. And ironically, it's also the used to be the position of the National Party until John Key decided he really wanted to have the Maori Party involved, and so abandoned what was an electoral promise that was started by Don Brash. Yeah, and and that's. The part is about you know what again this I you know harp on about what's what's the best outcomes what will produce the best outcomes what will produce the best accountability what will what will actually advance us and our issues and we've just been all this time talking about the importance of local representation and strengthening local communities yeah um, imagine what we could do with that you know imagine if you had you know, um, representation that was restricted to Tuwharitawa or, or wherever you wanted to be. You know that this was, you know, this was the strong local voice, and we're going to work together to ensure this community is well represented, um, and that smaller iwi don't lose their voice because they, they their representation is by someone who's probably lives, you know, hundreds of kilometres from where they're based. Yeah, I guess we need to wrap up a bit. You've got a campaign you've got to get back to. And yeah, <laughs> got to get back up. I've, I've got a flight out this afternoon. So got a flight out yet. this afternoon, <laughs> yep. So uh, let's just reiterate how people who want to help you, want to help New Zealand First win the Port Waikato by-election, how can they contact you? And uh, the easiest way to do that is by emailing. Yeah, casey at nzfirst.nz. Um, early voting starts the 13th of November. Last voting day is 25th of November. Remember, there is a by-election, so, you know, I keep getting calls about, did you know your election signs are still up? Um, nope, they're up again, but, you know, I think that's a, um, one of the methods. But, yeah, casey at nzfirst.nz, and, um, yeah, let me know and vote for me. Well, Casey, you're already in Parliament, but, uh, you know, the opportunity to win the Port Waikato by-election means that New Zealand First get an extra candidate as well, another competent person that, can assist particularly around finance and commerce and those sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, let's hope that uh, you didn't do win that David and Goliath battle and uh, you've got the courage to come and talk on Reality Check Radio. I can't say the same for Andrew Bailey, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I really appreciate your time, Cam.
No, most welcome, Casey. Thank you very much for coming on The Crunch. Casey is great, isn't she? So capable and now an MP on a mission. As you heard, there's a real drive to bring some accountability to the COVID Royal Commission of Inquiry. And that's exactly why people backed New Zealand First. Don't forget to send comments on Casey's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now it's time for Cam's Buddies. This week we'll find out what they think about the behaviour of our media. My producer has them all lined up and ready to go, so let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about the lamestream media and the propaganda press. Good afternoon, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Cam. How are you today? I am fantastic. Thank you very much. So this week I thought we would discuss the behaviour of the media in the way that they they have been acting like petulant clowns, demanding you know Winston Peters and Christopher Luxon and David Seymour answer their questions, damn it, and what you think about that and uh, the approach of the politicians to how they've been dealing with them. Well, I think some of the questions are good and worthy of an answer. Like one politician asked, I think, Winston, can I carry your bag? And that's probably the level of which some of our media uh, are at. So when a, when a media person asks a politician, can I carry your bag? I think that's a probably good question. It deserves an answer like yes or sod off. And um, when they say, oh, what are you negotiating this and that and the other about? Who in their right mind thinks it's a good idea to tell the media your strategy so that they can tell everybody so you can't negotiate? I mean... Is this moronic behaviour or is this just, are they low IQ individuals? Well, I mean, you know, the question about the can I carry your bag, can you imagine what would have happened if Winston Peters had said yes and handed it over? The TVNZ would have run the headline, Winston Peters can't even carry his own bag. How's he going to cope with a coalition? You know, you can just see what the, the sort of nonsense that they'd do. 100%. And also they're asking all these other questions about how long do you think it's going to take well, do they think that he's got a crystal ball? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about um, very important issues, aren't we? We're talking about the economy, the the, the policy issues that need to be addressed. Uh, each leader, of course, has his own supporters that he's got to be mindful of and all of that. And these ninny uh, journalists are, are treating it like it's some sort of game show. Well, when the question is, 
are you going left or right of politics? I think there's more urgency and more interest from the public. When it's which portfolio are you getting, only the Beltway would be interested. You could ask 100 people that you came across in um, Queen Street or Lambton Quay, who is the minister, and name any 10 um, portfolios. If, if more than five people knew more than five answers, I'd be astonished. And if more than five people knew more than one answer, I would still be astonished. Because most people don't give one. They just think, it's, if I'm going with a right-leaning government, that's where I'm going, I'm good. If I'm going with a left-leaning government, I can work with that. Whatever happens, I'll, I'll probably make a lot of money because they're stupid, <laughs> whatever, but not good for the country. So that's what happens if you're worried about which side of politics is going on. Because they're all on the same side, and now it's working out which portfolio, well, it behoves them to, one, keep their powder dry to negotiate the best they can for their um, constituents. And it also, when they've done that, they can actually put the, the slant on the doing of the work for the next three years. It's better that we plan a little now than have rubbish ministers later. You know, I, mean, I was watching TVNZ the other night and um, they had this outrage that Winston Peters walked for two minutes through the terminal and didn't utter a word and refused to answer the 27 questions that were put to him by reporters. Who are these people? Yeah. Do they not realise that they've treated uh, Winston Peters or indeed any other politician on the on the conservative side of the ledger with utter contempt and disdain for six years, why would you answer them if you were one of those politicians? I mean, I wouldn't. I don't talk to them. It's just biggest belief well, that they're stunned. Yeah, I don't talk to them on principle, and um, a few of them have rang me up making all sorts of claims about um, who I am. And mm. uh, as soon as they say their name, um, that's the end of the phone call as far as I'm concerned, because whatever they have to say... I'm not interested. So that's how I view many um, media. But also, one of the questions of the 27 was, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. What, what yeah. public interest is there of that? Another one was, can I carry your bag? And and, and 27, who's the fool that's counting? I mean, well, what has he got to do with life? I know. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, utterly ridiculous, the level that – I mean, what about uh, News Hub, right, owned by Discovery, one of the biggest media outlets in the world, you know, worth billions of dollars. They've got their cap in hand out to the politicians now begging for taxpayer money to keep them afloat. And their stunning, uh. their stunning uh, addition to the political debate is they've got a camera on a cauliflower and they're seeing how much it will wilt before we get a coalition agreement. <laughs> I mean, what I think is more interesting is that after spending the time hammering um, Luxon, um, Seymour and Winston and making, trying to make them into figures that the, the public don't like, but the public liked them more than the BS that the media was presenting, 
and then they're going cap in hand to these people, I'm sure they're going to have a, a roaring success on their financial policy of this big money from the government that we've slaked for as the last few years and see, see how much of that comes good. And as far as Winston is concerned, I think he's, you know, it's like he's got that Cheshire cat look about him. And I 100% agree with him that when people have poked their finger in your eye long enough and ignored you and marginalised you and won't give you any oxygen or any airtime, and then um, suddenly you get to, with hard work, true leather and going out there and making it happen, you get to get back into um, the controls again. Well, let's see how it all pans out for those folks that thought it was good. You know, the media are very short-sighted in some of the things they do, and I just look and think, it couldn't happen to a nicer group of people. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there was a few statements. I remember when Donald Trump called the the media the enemy of the people, and they were all outraged and uh, and hurt and had hurty feelings and said this is appalling and turning people against us. It's like they have no shred of humility. They they haven't got any self awareness, and they haven't realised that actually we loathe and despise most of them because they're loathsome and despisable people. And when they're being paid $55 million, to quote the government party line and not um, doing the job of the fourth estate, the whole country is weaker for it and then the whole world is weaker for it. And my firm belief is that there are people like George Soros, if you like, and I know that why would you think he's interested in New Zealand, but he's interested in every form of interruption as far as my point of view is concerned. He's trying to work out value for money, things that he can do that upset the normal life of good citizens. And and I think the media have been have bought into it and have they've been funded by the government and by the likes of people with agendas and they're just useful idiots. And you look but, and you think, boy, never a true word spoken. Yeah, look, you, you're a business person. You've got, I don't know how many companies, lots. I've lost count. Do many of those companies take any government money or not, none at all? And if the, if you uh, don't take any government money and, and uh, your customers uh, walk out the door and disappear, what happens to that business? Well, well, I've found that when customers stop buying because you stop giving them either the products or the services that they required – or even the services on the service, or the service on the services they require, and they vote with their feet. You have a much greater in tune to the way they're thinking, because your employees, futures, everything depends on it. And so, I don't take money from the government. And having said that, when the government said you can take some money to keep your employees employed during the lockdowns, I, I take that. That's a hundred percent. I did. But it was a very meager sum, and because a number of my employees are contractors as well, and so that they they were doing whatever that was right for them. Mm. But aside from that, I don't think I and I'm still in any given year a net contributor, not a net taker. For yeah. Sure. And, but you know, this is the thing so, with these yeah, media companies; they, they've got their hand out for government money, and then they also sit there and wallop the government that's giving them the money. It, it, it beggars belief that they have any sort of... It seems like they don't have any shame. Yeah, no shame. But they were definitely drinking the Kool-Aid as far as 
safe and effective is concerned, and as far as climate change is concerned, some of these companies won't even write an editorial for the other side of some arguments, even in the letters to the editor type thing. And I'm thinking, how is the science settled when it's done with the majority of scientists, which is just not how science is. Like one scientist makes a discovery, proves it over, you know, with over and over, and suddenly it changes the world. It's not the majority that we're after. It's the the leading science on the subject. And and again, that's all the media are complicit in the stupidity that, that we are being forced to face, which is spend millions of dollars as a country on things that might not be real and nothing on things that we know are real. And that's exactly right. You know, um, this is exactly why I have you guys on uh, Cam's Buddies because it just cuts through the BS and the spin and we get what real people on the street think and that's what Reality Checks Radio is all about. So thanks again, Paul, for calling in for Cam's Buddies and we'll talk again next week. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Bye for now. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Jack. G'day, Cam. How's your day going? My day's fantastic. Thank you very much. Now, I thought Brilliant. I'd uh, I thought I'd hit you with a little question about how you think the behaviour of the media has been <clears throat> in hounding Winston Peters and Christopher Luxon and David Seymour, asking them inane and ridiculous questions about negotiations before they've even begun. It's a little bit like the Israel Hamas conflict, isn't it? They both hate each other. And mm. nothing they can do can resolve anything. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, watching the performance on TVNZ the other night uh, where they're chasing uh, Winston Peters through the airport and complaining that in two minutes he failed to answer 27 questions. And, and this is a, a terrible thing that Winston Peters won't answer questions. We saw stuff uh, doing the same thing. Oh, we asked him these questions and he refused to answer. What do you think about that? <coughs> Look, Cam, you're a journalist. I don't put you in the same camp as these other guys, but all they want is sensation. And he's the one that will give it. So they will do anything to do whatever so that they can write something innocuous. Are they as dumb as a pack of performing seals? Well, you probably know that my areas of expertise are photography and flying. And I probably know more than the average person about both. And whenever I read something in the Herald or stuff on either of those topics... I think, oh, my God, nothing of this article is true. And then you extrapolate that to all the other things that you're not an expert in. You think nothing in this paper is true. (laughs) So I don't know. No, There's somebody who famously said that um, news is all the bits in the paper that they couldn't sell advertising for. Yeah, I sometimes wonder. But, I mean, at the moment, because the Labor government paid all that money to the press to keep them afloat, um, you can't believe anything that's said because um, they've been put on an agenda. Yeah, I mean, I call them the propaganda press, and I think it's an accurate description. I think it's very accurate. Nothing much more I could say. Winston could do better, to be fair. He's smarter than all of them put together, but he plays along to their fantasies. He could put a stop to that much easier if he wanted to, but I think he, he it humours him. I think he's getting some sort of... Uh, enjoyment out of ignoring them like they ignored him during the election campaign for the last three years. And I think he gets some sort of perverse pleasure from that. And But, but you know, the funny thing is, Jack, is that that's why I voted for him, to do things like that. 
to to be a larrikin, to be mischievous. And, uh, you know, I've got to say, I'm loving it. I think you're right. But the great masses out there, um, they still hang on to every word the media says, unfortunately. So they don't go along with it. I'm on your side, but um, I think we're in a minority. Uh, I don't know if we are in a minority. 53% of the voting population voted for National Act or New Zealand First. That's a a clear majority. So, uh, you know, this is the thing. I'm sitting there watching, you know, Chris Hipkins announcing that, oh, you know, I'm going to put capital gains tax and a wealth tax back on the table. It's like nobody um, has told Chris Hipkins the election finished like four weeks ago. I think we're all over it, to be honest. I wish we'd, something would happen so we can just get on. Well, I actually don't want anything to happen other than someone to hit the brake and the handbrake and uh, and try and do a bit of a donut and reverse direction 180 degrees because what we've been doing for the last six years is appalling and we need to unravel all that and then start heading back to some of the things that actually work, not this, you know, woke wombolism that doesn't achieve anything other than make people angry. But when I listen to uh, Luxon, I don't hear any different rhetoric from him at all. But time will tell. Well, somebody described some, to, Yeah, I mean, somebody described again. him to me the other day as the David Brent of of New Zealand politics. And I don't know if you yes. ever wa- ever watched The Office, but uh, you know that's Ricky Gervais's character of David Brent, the inept manager who thinks he's brilliant. Yeah, that's a good description. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Can I use that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most welcome to use it, Jack. <laughs> I think you said that last week when I said something. You said, can I use it? <laughs> I'm always looking at profound things to use. <laughs> well, all uh, thank you for calling in to Cam's Buddies. And as usual, it's been highly entertaining. And we'll talk again next week. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Jimmy. How are you this afternoon? G'day, Cam. Good, good, very good. How are you? Oh, I'm always great, mate. Always great. <laughs> what now? What things have you got for me tonight, mate? Right. Well, G'day. I think what we'll do is we'll have a little chat about the media and how they've been behaving towards, you know, the prospective leaders uh, of National Enact and New Zealand First as they, you know, throw their little tanties because uh, the politicians aren't talking to them. What do you think about that from your observation? Well, I think Winston has been excellent in ignoring the media. There's nothing positive. Whatever he says to them would be spun in a way that would be used against him. And I think that um, Seymour and even Luxon not talking to them too much, giving very brief interviews, has just been amazing and they they just want to fill up content time and click time so they've just got to get anything and yet there is literally nothing to talk about because we don't know anything about the coalition they should go and investigate something else like chloe swarbrook's speech at the domain the other day yeah just appalling and and, but the trouble is is the media are all cheering people like chloe swarbrook on but i'm actually impressed with christopher luxon and, and, you know, I thought you're probably going to pick yourself up off the floor that I've actually said that now. But but I think he's been like kind of on message. We're not talking about the coalition. It's it's almost like him and Winston and David Seymour have said, right, boys, we're not talking about anything until we've got it all sorted. 
then we'll have a joint meeting and we'll announce what we're going to do. But it's, you know, say nothing and uh, and we'll just uh, watch the media who basically tried to ankle tap us, uh, you know, act like fifth columnists and uh, and try and get, you know, one over on us for the last six years. And uh, we're not going to play their game. We're going to play our game. Exactly. And and like as Winston said, they didn't want to talk to him before the election and now they want to talk to him. So stuff them. I hope they all get together and agree to defund the, uh, the public interest journalism fund. You know, well, I think they could make go the further media than actually that. work for their money. No, I well, think they need to go further than but, that. They need to stop all the government um advertising or yeah, and stop yeah, or cut, stop paying for budgets. it. Yeah, stop paying for it. And if it is genuine public interest like, you know, there's a measles outbreak and we really need people to get vaccinated for measles or something similar to that, we'll make them carry that for free. And uh, then they can't sell that space to somebody else and then they'll go broke a little bit faster. Well, maybe not for free that, but they should at least all tender for it so they all have a, like we all have to in our businesses, you know. Um, whereas I know that over COVID that all the COVID messaging was not, um, it was just open price, just whatever they wanted and that was part of the it was full rack rate, wasn't corrupt it? Way of fun. Yeah, and it's just that was the gravy. And they can just all tender for the advertising. Like we have to for everything, like every other government department makes us do. So I, I really hope Winston and talks, you know, get Seymour and Luxon on board with that. And that's one big, strong part of the coalition thing because we have to sort the media out. It's insane. They're supposed to be the fourth estate. But many years ago, I nicknamed them the media party. But I actually think that they're, they're not actually like involved as a political party. I think they're actually more the propaganda press than anything else. They're, they've well, become, they, they've become you, under Labour an arm of the government. Well, I remember when you used to call them the media party, and at the time it seemed correct. But they've gone further than that since then, right? And and especially since COVID, they've become a propaganda arm. It's like... So, like, the sheer fact that Chloe Swybrook could stand up and stay there and not get any massive heat or stood down or pressure or something the other day is just blows my mind, eh? Well, I, mean, I, I can't I, believe that happens in our country. I mean, I guess that's where you're seeing the power of, you know, Twitter under Elon Musk is that people can snip that out, uh, add commentary, and then create thousands of views of that that would normally not get seen um, because the media aren't covering it. It is being covered now. It's being covered by citizens. It's being covered by commentators. It's been covered by anybody who's got an opinion on X or Twitter, as it used to be called. I mean, you, you know, you look at um, at Tucker Carlson. You know, he had an audience of 5 million, 5 million when he was on Fox News. He's got an audience of hundreds of millions now. You know, every time he issues one of his uh, one of his videos, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think what we're seeing is the last hurrah of the conglomerate media. You know, like News Hub, like One News, like New Zealand Herald uh, stuff, where they're actually not relevant anymore. People can bypass them completely. Well, we just saw the project Gast, so that was good. That was an expensive exercise, of making no money and being woke. So I've got the gas. This is what has to happen if these media companies want to get back on track. I mean, it just can't be sustained. Radio New Zealand's audience is shrinking with no ads. 
Mm. You know, Mike Hoskins' audience has massively grown. And he but, has but, aren't, but aren't they, aren't they uh, you know, crying a river of tears? I mean, there's this big article in the media on uh, on Tuesday, uh, you know, going, oh, this is a great loss to New Zealand television that the project's been gassed. <laughs> you, you know, it's really? Not, it's not a great loss. It's a, the, a, a loss to the Greyland Greens, mate. That's all it is. No the Greyland Greens and the, Belt, and the Beltway Greens <laughs> in Wellington. <laughs> yeah. No one watches them. It's just woke fools talking crap. No one watches it, and that's why it got gassed. It's just... Yeah. It just doesn't make money. It just... Yeah. So the way Winston, and particularly Winston, but, you know, this whole coalition agreement not negotiated in the media is, is honestly, in my eyes, a success so far. And I hope that they continue to be like this. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, to taking a leaf out of Wayne Brown's book, I mean, he hasn't given any interviews <laughs> since he's been the mayor. It's like, oh, well, can we have an interview? No. Or he just doesn't reply. He's, he's just doing outstanding, though. I saw even some lefties sort of saying that they have to concede that he's doing a good job the other day. And I just think... He's just managing it so well. Well, he's not grandstanding in the media. I mean, I was talking to an MP today, and I was saying, you know, Simon O'Connor, who's just got gassed in um, in Tamaki by Brooke Van Velden, he shut down all his social media. He was doing all of these things about Taiwan and about, you know, this and that and abortion and everything else, And, and since the election, he's disappeared, which just goes to show that there was no principles involved. It was just grandstanding. And that's what a lot of our media are doing. You know, if you follow any of the media on tw- on Twitter or X, as it's called now, it's just an exercise in banality. You don't actually learn anything no, from the fools. No, it's it's honestly it's well. I, as you know, I've tuned out ages ago, and I, just everyone I know has. You know, loads of people who I used to know buy the newspaper. They just don't buy them anymore. Just don't listen to the radio. Just they just don't, and that's. These woke fools just keep doing what they're doing, but they're failing. And then finally we've got a bunch of politicians to beat them up from the inside as well. And if the uh, new yeah. government takes away their money, then they'll probably fail, and that might be a good thing. Oh, no, definitely. Like, stuff won't survive without government. So 70% of their advertising revenue is indirectly from the government, so that they just won't survive. Oh, dear. And I can't wait to see that day. <laughs> Reminds me of that politically incorrect show, uh, It Ain't Half Up, Mum, and Windsor Davies' character, and he goes, oh, dear, how sad. Never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's my take on that, Cam. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for calling into Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Miles. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon. How are you today, Cam? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much for asking. What about yourself? I'm doing very well, enjoying a bit of summer sun. Well, exactly. And speaking of fun, uh, how have you uh, viewed the antics of the media chasing Winston Peters and Christopher Luxon and David Seymour for comments over the last few days or weeks uh, as uh, they've all studiously ignored the entreaties of these media lovies? Well, I think the mainstream media needs to realise that they report the news. They don't make the news. I think that the politicians have been doing the right thing, keeping their mouths shut, um, organising whatever needs to be organised, 
And I'm sure that when the time is right, they'll let the media know and they'll happily let the media know. But until then, what's the story? I'll tell you what the story is. The story is the media going off at half cock, asking stupid questions, and I have to say I'm heartily sick of the mainstream media and I'm finding it very gratifying that the politicians of all three parties have got a bit of um, spine and backbone to stand up, say nothing, and get on with the business at hand so that they can organise a successful government. And I have to agree with you on that. But, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the propaganda press, the mainstream media and their, you know, willful ignorance on many issues, then, you know, they've created a, a rather large space for Reality Check Radio to occupy. And, uh, you know, I'm all in favour of actually trying to gas the other media uh, quite significantly. So, you know, maybe some of them fall over. And it might sound gleeful on my part, but you know, having been attacked by the media for years and years and years, you know, I have a little bit of schadenfreude here. Look, I'm... 100% with you on that. I was horrified during the campaign at the media and what they said. The mainstream media were basically Labour Party propaganda shills. And from my perspective, I was um, listening to the election night broadcasts and the funniest thing that happened was that one of the guests made a joke about Winston Peters becoming broadcasting minister. And you could just see the looks of shock and horror on the, on the media um, faces, on the TV presenters' faces after he said that. And basically, they said, look, that's not funny. <laughs> it was the best the best thing that happened, apart from the uh, win of the um, centre-right the whole evening. Yeah, I, I had a little giggle about Tober O'Brien, who was saying, you know, if you're standing on your mother's grave and hand on heart, could you have predicted that this would happen? And and I think that 53% of New Zealanders at least were sitting there nodding their heads going, yeah, yeah Tova, yeah, yeah, we did predict it. We did see this coming. The polls all said it was going to happen. Uh, so why are you surprised? And I guess this is, you know, the disconnect that the media have. They just simply are not representative of the general public in any way, shape or form. They're, you know, liberal elite uh, tossers that are so far up their own fundament um, that they think that awful aroma is actually perfume, but it's actually the inside of their bowels. Come on, Cam, tell us what you really think. No, I think you've got a point. I'm sorry to have to say my view of the mainstream media is that they seem to have dug themselves into a hole, and that hole has... Uh, collapsed in on them. But instead of stopping digging and uh, trying to reassess their position, they're keeping on doing what they've always done. And in my opinion, public um, mood has turned. And I am beginning to see a lot of people looking at other sources like Reality Check Radio so that they can get a perspective on the news that hasn't been available 
in New Zealand for years and years. I mean, you look at the election campaign in the media. I mean, how often did we see anything about you know a lot of the minor party candidates uh, other than derision, uh, mocking, or attempts to hijack, uh, shame them into into towing the line on what the media thinks is important. And you look at Reality Check Radio, you know, we interviewed hundreds, hundreds of other candidates, other viewpoints from lots of minor parties. Uh, and we provided people with a broad spectrum. Now, sure, you know, some people in the National Party came on some of the shows and none came on mine other than Mark Mitchell. And to his credit, he stood up to the bosses in the National Party and said, look, I'm going on Cam show whether you like it or not. But you know, the reality is, is that those minor parties benefited from the exposure in the media from Reality Check Radio. Imagine how much better they would have been if the media had actually given them a similar exposure to what we gave them. You know, and then that, and that's a, a question, a very uh, serious question that the mainstream media needs to answer and explain why they're affecting democracy in such a negative way by not giving them coverage? I'm frankly over the mainstream media. I think they've had their chances at putting it right. I think the chill wind of a new government and a new way of thinking, and I think the chill wind will include the real or very real chance that revenues will decrease to a point that some organisations find it untenable uh, for them to continue. And in this, I see uh, Reality Check Radio having a, a real part to play in the resurgence of, of actual reporting, of asking people for their point of view and then publishing that, rather than what seems to have happened from the mainstream media where we get opinions reported as news, we get fake experts reported as knowing what's best for everyone. And goodness me, I'm sick of it. I'll tell you what, I like to look at all the facts. I like to make up my own mind. And, you know, the mainstream media has done themselves a real disservice. And I feel that... Um, you know, you can see this derision that they've treated the minor parties even to this day. When just recently they reported on the opening of the um, by-election at um, Port Waikato and uh, they're saying, you know, only one person had a natural hair colouring and implying that everyone else was old and white-headed. I mean, what, what was going on in that journalist's mind? No, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think there was anything going on in the journalist's mind. I think the gerbil in the wheel had pegged out. <laughs> I mean, that sort of thing has hit uh, Luxon as well, and I think Luxon, to his credit, has handled the media admirably well. And I yeah, think I mean, I Seymour much, has also done a good job. I said as much before, I think it was with Jimmy, I said, you're probably picking yourself up off the floor. I've just praised Christopher Luxon. <laughs> well, you know, credit where credit's due, but I'll tell you something. Luxon, Seymour and Peters 
must be really grumpy about the way that they were misrepresented during the election campaign. And I believe that they were misrepresented. I mean, there was every chance for the media to report a balanced election. And in my view, they failed. It was total failure. They came across, as I had said earlier, the left-wing um, propaganda machine. Yeah. Patsies and, and shills. Yep. And look, I think there's going to be a very real change. I think people are over just believing what has been spoon-fed to them by the media. I think the media need to realise that the public know that they're interviewing their own keyboards and I think the media need to realise that their opinion doesn't matter at all. We're not interested in their opinion. They're not celebrities. They're reporters. Their job is to bring us facts from all sides of the story. I want to read those facts. I want to make up my own mind. And currently, one of the few places that gives me that is Reality Check Radio. And on that note, Miles. Thank you for calling Cam's Buddies, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you very much, Cam. Aren't my buddies just awesome? They never let me down. Now tell us who you think is the best of Cam's Buddies and why that is by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. If you'd like to contact us here at Reality Check Radio, you can email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us by sending your message to 2057. And now it's time for the mailbag. There's quite a bit today, and we've got some birthday wishes from last week. Happy birthday, Cam. Hope you have a brilliant one and many more, God willing. And I did have a fantastic birthday. I uh, got an email here from Simon, says, of course, snails are protected to the max. Our government bureaucracy follows the snails mantra. You know, slow, slimy and elusive, basically yucky. Fiona writes, Cam could tap Lord Jonathan Sumption whilst he's in Christchurch on Saturday and Dame Sylvia Cartwright on the Royal Commission. Those are good ideas. Uh, just on the Ken Turner interview, bravo, Ken and Cam. Great convo and common sense. Council needs more Kens. I hope you have him back. Yeah, I certainly will. Uh, on the Greg Sayers interview, um, Mike from Foxton, my best buddy Mike, says, Hi, Cam, I expect to be bored to tears with the council members that you had on this evening, but was quite surprised when I found myself engrossed in the very well-led interview. 
you really do have a way of drawing out the answers from some very good guests. A bouquet to the guy who suggested the interview of these guys. I truly believe that local government is forced to do what central government wants, but doesn't really have a mandate to. All the last few governments had forgotten who put them there and believe that they can just do whatever they feel the UN, WEF, WHO agenda sets out. Us freedom fighters know this, and I would really like to thank everyone who is in the movement. I also believe that if we all stand together, we can beat the swines. But it does start at the bottom with local councillors like your two guests this evening. A great interview, and I commend them for all that are trying to accomplish. Armstrong Cam's buddies, your mates are all golly good, jolly good chaps. And they were all great men. I'm not a sissy either, and I'm a girl. And Bronwyn writes and says, great question for the buddies this week. I actually agree with Jack about women's emancipation starting this process of weak and woke men. Miles touched on the way men are portrayed in ads. But I'd like to add that for at least 20 years, the father-husband in TV programs, and particularly American sitcoms, has been portrayed as weak and subordinate to the woman, which has now come to be the case in real life in so many relationships. Very sad. Got a, uh, another email here from Mike uh, from Foxton about my monologue last week. Thanks very much for your direct style. I've had many chuckles at your funny comments, but that's not the main reason for making contact with you. Like you, I am the survivor of a stroke that left me speech impaired and loss of feeling on my left-hand side. When I tell people of my story of how I eventually became well again, they say I should write a book. For the past two days, I've had an overwhelming message from above to get in touch with you to explore the possibility to help others with the devastating symptoms of a stroke. This is the first time I've ever reached out to anybody before. I realize you may think I'm nuts, but as you know, nearly dying and completely rebuilding my new and enriched life, I've been called nuts before. Please feel free to get in touch or not. Since having my stroke, I've become an inventor and have held world patents, been a director of a small company, and much more. P.S. Keep up the fight. Proud to be an anti-COVID vaccinator. Well, Mike, I will get in touch with you because it's something that's been nagging away at me too about helping people with strokes because here's a little known fact. When you have a stroke, there is no ACC. It is only up to you. So if you don't have any insurance like I did, then you really, really suffer in trying to recover. I was lucky and I was able to pay for constant physio for two years. But there's plenty of other people out there who have no help at all. And they need to know that if they get moving, they keep moving. So, yeah, I'll be in touch. Uh, we can talk through some ideas. Uh, regarding my Gary Moller interview, hi, Cam, great talk with Gary Moller. You are spot on in your thoughts on the food pyramid. Our doctors aren't trained to heal us. They give out a pill or a drug. And there you go, all fixed. See ya. Yes, but what caused it? I'm not trained and don't greatly care. I pay the bill at the reception. Bye. From Chris. Now, about my Crunch special special that I did on Friday. Uh, 
Enjoyed your commentary with David Farrow regarding the final election results. Interesting demographic comments. Can you please explain more about the number of enrolled on the separate Maori roll and what percentage turned up to vote? Also keen to know if the new law allowing enrolment up to the last voting day may have opened potential for multiple votes in multiple electorates. Was the identity verification adequate? Well, Anon, I don't know the details about the Maori roll and uh, percentages, but I'll look into it. Regarding this uh, allowing enrollment up to the last voting day, it's almost impossible for multiple votes in multiple electorates to occur because they're all special votes. And the reason why it takes 21 days to verify the special votes or to count the special votes is not the counting of them, it's the verification of them. So they search you know, electoral rolls, they search uh, births, deaths and marriages, they do all sorts of searches to verify that there is indeed one John A. Smith uh, who's in that electorate. So the chances of there being multiple votes um, are very slim. I mean, people try it, they get prosecuted. It's very, very rare in New Zealand. Roger writes, so National had four, has 48 seats, the Greens have 15, 63 is enough. Have National ever worked out, ruled out working with the Greens or have the Greens ever ruled out working with National? Bit of a scary thought, but could you put my mind to rest on this one? Well, Roger, no, I can't put your mind to rest on that because when you look at Christopher Luxon's climate change position, he'd be very happy sitting in the Greens. Uh, so that can never be ruled out. It's politics. Anything is possible. Now, we've got a few comments, some nice, some nasty, but I'm going to read them all about things that I've said in political panel because I haven't covered it in general in the on the crunch because it's not really politics, even though it interests me a lot. Now, we've had some feedback from listeners on the topic of Palestine and Israel. And this will be in response to my comments made on the political panel or perhaps on my social media pages. Now, it's important I do make it clear that all comments on RCR are my own personal views. No one tells me what to say or do, and that's why I work for RCR, because I have a freedom of expression. But my views do not represent the views of the station, per se. Myself and all other hosts and contributors are free to share our own personal views on issues. This is why you'll see Rodney Hyde and I disagree on the ACT Party, perhaps, or on voting strategies. But you will have noticed that we don't all share those same perspectives on those various issues. And that's certainly the case in respect of the current Middle East situation. But that's the beauty of free speech that RCR provides a platform for us to share our different points of view rather than seeking to push a particular position. Okay, so let's get the feedback on that then. This one is from Sarah. Hi, Cam. I did already write in to Paul Brennan on the topic of Palestine Israel, as was pleased he has interviewed a couple of commenters, commentators who are looking at the situation from more of a bird's eye view rather than taking one side or the other. And I do recommend that RCA listeners do that. I'm also compelled to write to you as well to share my sentiments after hearing you on the political panel this week. 
those sentiments are. The truth is that we are so often being pushed into sharing views in a knee-jerk reaction. Everyone demands that everyone takes a position, rendering situations to black and white binary decisions. Make a choice, choose a side, choose a tribe. Emotions run high, extremely anxiety, extreme anxiety proliferates, and the losers are the people, men, women, and especially, especially the children. They're caught in the middle. Those are really good points, Sarah, and ones that I agree with 100%. Thank you for your feedback on that. Anonymous writes, I'm not at all impressed with your reporting on the Israel-Gaza conflict. Well, you can't please everybody. John emailed in three messages, which in the interest of time, we've had to abridge somewhat, but hopefully I'll be able to cover your main points, John. Cam, you have to ask the question, how in the heck did a low-budget terrorist group manage to penetrate the world's most protected border, a border that's so protected there's actually no way to bring the types of munitions, let alone the materials, to the said Hamas weapons? Well, I can address that. Having been to that border, having been in uh, Sterot, having been in those kibbutzes on those borders, they do bring in munitions. They come in via sea to Gaza. They come in via the Egyptian border, which most people don't realize Gaza has a border uh, with Egypt through the Rafah gate. Uh, Iran supplies these munitions. Often they are homemade or they are uh, things like gas pipes that have been brought in to provide the population with gas or which Hamas then redistributes into making missiles. So they do bring in those. How did a low-budget terrorist group manage to penetrate the world's most protected border? Well, that's a question for an inquiry that the Israeli government is going to have to answer to. And Netanyahu himself has said, I'll have to answer as well. But be that as it may, the Israelis probably knew that it was coming. They just didn't know the size of it. So it's a terrible, terrible situation on all sides. But Israel does have the right to defend themselves. Now, another point that John raises. Perhaps you're aware that Netanyahu a few years back proposed a new Middle East, which included creating a new canal to ship goods, with said canal running directly through Gaza. Seymour Hirsch, who I'm sure you're aware of, has done a deep dive on recent events. And he states that Netanyahu approved the funding of hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas. Netanyahu was forewarned by Egypt that Hamas was about to commit a massive assault However, Netanyahu decided to drop border protection by two-thirds despite IDF disapproval, as those troops were needed for protection for for a Jewish festival on the West Bank. Uh, There's different views on the funding of Hamas. There's different views on uh, withdrawal of the IDF. I think that's best left to the Israeli government to conduct a uh, comprehensive review, which they will do after they've destroyed Hamas. Uh, He adds, just because Hamas got voted in, potentially rigged election, it doesn't mean the majority of Palestinians wish death on all Jews. That's as retarded as saying all Jews believe Gentiles to be their goyim. That's a point of view that you may have, and you're entitled to your point of view, John. And finally, as last point, 
I just cannot believe a truth-based radio station can bite down so hard on what is blatantly a false flag event and ride the scapegoat as the social controllers intended. And now it sounds like you're okay with the current mass genocide on an absolutely unprecedented level because false flag attack. Well, John, I don't know where to start on that. Uh, saying that defending yourself is mass genocide and it's unprecedented when we actually do know uh, the levels of genocide that have been perpetrated against Jewish people in World War II, where more than six million died. Uh, I can't say anything more on that. Uh, David writes, Hello, Cam, I like your mostly calm and considered approach when discussing matters political. Here are a couple of links which I'll find you'll find interesting and illuminating. Everyone loses in the current crisis in the Middle East, and these two links look at the history. And the links are about the Balfour Declaration and uh, and and the uh, plight of Palestinian Christians. And I thank you, David, for those. They've added to my extensive list and interest in this area, and uh, I, I appreciate your comments. And that's it for the mailbag for this week. Right, that's it for the crunch this week. Banksy didn't hold back, and I'm sure he echoes many of your thoughts. He's genuine, and I think more than a little bit misunderstood. Hopefully you can now appreciate what I see in John Banks the man, not the politician. Casey Costello continues to impress me with her candor and her capability. I really hope she can take the seat of Port Waikato. And you may be wondering why we didn't have Andrew Bailey on the show. Well, we tried. My producer, Bex, chased and chased, and it seems he doesn't want to talk. And I've heard reports, too, that he won't front public meetings either, or even a by-election debate on another media outlet. And that's pretty shameful behaviour from someone seeking the votes from the electorate. The invitation stands, though, and let's hope sanity prevails and he decides to engage with our listeners. Look, we're here at Reality Check Radio to give you all sides of any story or issue to discuss those meaty issues and thrash them out. And it's a job we absolutely love doing. If you're using the RCR app, and you really should be, you can easily get all our replays as well as listen live. Don't forget to click on the crunch and you can hear all my replays. And a big thanks for the team that helped put this show together and make it all work. It's been a real pleasure having you all back again this week. I'm loving your feedback and really enjoying talking to so many people sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. So a big shout out to you all. Thank you for listening, having faith in me as we continue to explore what I think is this beautiful game of politics. Don't forget to email suggestions at inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview, and let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Next week, I've got a former BBC journalist and Australian journalist to talk about the situation in Fijian politics for a little bit of a change. And I've got Gary Moller back on the show next week. So make sure you tune in and have a listen. It's bound to be a great show. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including Money Talks with my buddy Farzan Arani, and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. I look forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. 
You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.